You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. I don't suppose they uh, told you anything in Denver about the tragedy we had up here during the winter of 1970. I heard a man named Charles Grady is the winter caretaker. From what I've been told, I mean, he seemed like a completely normal individual. But at some point during the winter, he must have suffered some kind of a complete mental breakdown. He ran amok. Uh, killed his family well you can rest assured Mr. Ullman that's not going to happen with me The Shining a masterpiece of modern horror Directed by Stanley Kubrick, starring Jack Nicholson and Shelley Duvall, rated R, opens Friday, June 13. Check newspapers for local listings. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Mr. Keith Gordon. Hello, and good to be back. Also with us this week is Mr. Vincenzo Natale. Ditto. This week, we are looking at the 1980 film from director Stanley Kubrick, The Shining. Adapted from a novel by Stephen King, the film tells the tale of Jack, Wendy, and Danny Torrance, a family who spend a winter at the Overlook Hotel in Colorado. Jack plans on writing a book, but instead battles the inner demons of alcohol and anger, slowly going mad, perhaps with the help of the ghosts of the Overlook. Of course, we're going to be talking a lot about all the different aspects of the film, including the ending, so if you haven't seen The Shining... And why haven't you? Please, please go ahead, watch the movie, come on back, and we'll still be here. So, Keith, when was the first time that you saw The Shining, and what did you think? I saw The Shining on the second show opening day in New York. Um, so I, of course, I got to see the now-deleted scene with, uh, with uh, Barry Nelson at the end of the film. I was, as I've been several times with Kubrick films, really disappointed the first time I saw it. Uh, I was hyped for it literally for years. Uh, you know, he was my favorite filmmaker, guy that influenced me more than anybody else. But often with his movies, I found I had to see them more than once, partly because I was just so excited. But also because what I've come to love about The Shining really, really deeply was not the film we'd been set up to expect. You know, at that point, all the advertising was around, this will be the scariest movie ever made. That was Kubrick's whole claim for the film. There was an incredible trailer with the blood coming out of the elevators. So when I went, um, and I went, there was a bunch of us there. There was this woman I was living with who was a huge Kubrick fan, and uh, Brian De Palma was at the same showing. And everybody, I think everybody's expecting this, like, terrifying experience. And, and when the film didn't operate the way a normal horror film did, I think we all were like, what, huh, what was that? And as often with the films that are now in my top, you know, 10 films ever made or 25 films ever made, it was only on revisiting it multiple times that I kind of came to love it deeper and deeper and – for me, I, I fell in love with it not as a horror film, but as the blackest of black comedies about the nature of the nuclear American family, as well as about the nature of writer's block and creativity. Um, but that was a process for me, you know, coming off of, well, that wasn't the scariest movie ever made and having to get over that. So it's been a, a strange arc. But frankly, I had a similar arc with Barry Lyndon. I've had a similar arc. You know, there were a number of films that I had to come to understand were operating at way different levels than I was walking in anticipating. And that's been with Kubrick, but with other great filmmakers as well. How about you, Vincenzo? Growing up in Canada, if you were under 18 and a film was restricted, you weren't allowed in. 
unless you somehow could sneak your way in. And The Shining was restricted, and I guess I was around 11 when it came out. So, uh, And I desperately wanted to see it, but in lieu of being able to actually watch it, I read the book, which was probably the first sort of adult kind of novel I'd read. And the book terrified me. The book actually really did terrify me and was very impactful at the time. And so I couldn't catch up to it until it was on VHS. And that probably, I'm just guessing, but it probably wasn't like until a year or two at least after it had been released. So it was a different kind of experience coming at it that way. And I was fairly young, but I, I remember really loving the movie, but I think it was so massive in my mind, like the, the anticipation of what it would be probably outweighed and eclipsed what it actually was. And then it was, I think when I read the book, I, I connected with it in a very personal way. And, and so the movie and the book, I suppose, has sort of been more than a, than the sum of their parts. It's been, I, I can't, I can't, I can't even judge either of them to this day because they feel like they're so much a part of my life. The Shining is the only film where I actually have had a physical reaction to it. And I, I will say right off, I did not hurl when I saw it, but as a, I probably saw it maybe like 12 or 13, saw it on VHS like you, Vincenzo. And that noise, the the high-pitched noise that goes through this film, and I thought that I was crazy, like thinking that there was these noises and stuff, but rewatching it again last night and just like, yeah, there are noises in this film and there are some really high pitched things. And I was really susceptible when I was younger to headaches, like really terrible, terrible headaches. And I remember getting such a headache while I was watching the film that I actually had to stop watching it. And I think I was actually watching it with my, my folks, or at least my dad, which is probably pretty irresponsible, <laughs> but I had to excuse myself and go someplace else and try to get rid of this headache because it was just too much. I mean, I remember specifically like the, the doors opening and all the blood coming out of the elevator and all that kind of stuff and it being, yes, disturbing, but really just, it, I've never had that type of reaction to a film before where I got physically ill or, or affected by something like that. So it takes a lot for something like that to to happen, and, and this is the only time. So it has stuck with me for all these years as being one of the few films that could give me any kind of a visceral reaction. So it's really kind of stood out in my mind as far as like, oh yeah, here's this film. And it's not one that I necessarily go back to very often, but it always has held a place of high esteem for me. And I have to say, it was really kind of funny. This week I was talking on Facebook, hey, I'm going to be doing this episode. And just so many people kind of came out of the woodwork to talk about how much they disliked this film. And I was like, wow, I've never actually experienced anybody who disliked the film. Though, I guess it's because I didn't read the reviews of when the film came out at the time. Because this movie was really trashed when it first came out. I couldn't believe some of the reviews that were happening. And, and I guess because Kubrick is held in that high regard and so many people consider you know him a genius and his work to all be genius, that I just never would even consider that people really dislike this movie so much. Well, it's interesting if you look historically at Kubrick's track record, just about everything he did got terrible reviews for the most part when they first were released. 
which just speaks a little bit to what I was saying before in terms of people having to come around on films by, by very dense filmmakers. I mean, 2001 got a lot weaker reviews and strong reviews. Uh, Full Metal Jacket, uh, Clockwork Orange was, was ravaged by a lot of critics. It's kind of been a fascinating part of his history. Uh, Dr. Strangelove was very mixed in his critical response. So it's an interesting thing that his movies often engendered that, and then people came around with, on them with time. But before we get too far, I really want to hear about the alternate ending. I don't remember it sadly that well because I didn't know it was going to be an alternate ending. So, of course, I wasn't sitting there in the movie theater going, oh, memorize these, whatever it was, five minutes, six <laughs> minutes, because you're never going to see them again. Um, I do remember that there, you know, there was a scene in the hospital with uh, – you know, with with uh, 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 Barry Nelson visiting, you know, Shelley Duvall and kind of giving a very um, it reminded me a little bit of the scene at the end of Psycho uh, um, where everything's kind of tied up by the cops. And he kind of comes in and sort of sums up that they found the body. And the, but I don't remember it being a particularly great or particularly bad scene. It was sort of OK. It was not one of the highlights of the movie. Uh, and then when I sort of read later that, that Kubrick had like had it cut out of every print, it's just it's amazing because he's probably the only filmmaker I can think of who's managed to be able to do it and do it twice. I mean, he did it in 2001. He chunk, cut a whole chunk out, you know, to be able to sort of have a film in distribution, wide distribution and pull the prints out and cut physically cut a scene out of the movie because you don't like the way it plays with an audience is a pretty, pretty wild thing to be able to do. Um, but I don't remember it as being. Like, oh, I can't believe they took that out, or, or wow, I'm glad they took it out. I think it was a fairly innocuous scene that was just sort of a sum up. It certainly didn't need it. I think, I think probably the strength of the ending is better without it. I mean, the, the, it's it's more visual, it's less verbal, but it it uh, it was it was not a big deal either way, which is why it was an interesting thing that he he had that impulse to go through the expense and trouble to actually have it lifted from the film. Now, from what I understand, and this is just reading uh different people so who knows if it's true or not but from what i understand that tennis ball that jack throws shows up at the ending and i don't know if it's barry nelson that hands it to him to danny or if danny just has it and i don't know if danny throws it against the wall like jack was doing but it seems to be this kind of thing that the evil is not over that there it it could continue and i think that that kind of gets summed up a little bit better by the photograph at the very, very end. But I mean, that it, it's an interesting idea. Sure. And I don't remember that, but it's certainly possible that was there. I mean, again, it's certainly not, I, I mean, I would kill to see that stuff again. I'm, I'm, I, I have that fantasy. I think that a lot of film fans have is that footage will show up on some special edition Blu-ray at some point or something, but I have a funny feeling we'll be waiting a long time. It's, it's very special. I've never heard of anybody firsthand who had seen it. Well, like I say, if I knew then what I knew now, I would have watched it so carefully. How, how long was it in circulation before you pulled it? Oh, it was only a matter of days. If I remember correctly, it was a matter of days. I mean, I think it was within, I think it was released, you know, in a number of cities and within, I think, three, four, five days, uh, they, they pulled it and cut it out. Um, I, I have, I'm not absolutely positive about it, but that's my memory at the time. Yeah, there's an interview with the guy who cut out 
that scene in New York and New Jersey. Because from what I understand, it opened L.A. and New York a few weeks before it opened wide. And there was one guy, this guy that they interviewed for that Centipede uh, book, that that doorstop um, shining collection. And he was the guy going around in New York and New Jersey and cutting it out. And he had Kubrick on the phone with him telling, telling him exactly what frames to cut out. And he went around the city, no shit, in a limousine that Warner Brothers provided and just took him to every single theater. And they had people basically watching him and taking the footage after he was done cutting it out. So there was a question to him in this interview about, like, did you manage to take any frames? It's like, nope, nope. Everything went back to Warner Brothers. That was it. And apparently there was a guy doing the exact same thing on the West Coast as well. So, and he even says at one point that he stopped at a theater, I think it was maybe in New Jersey, and this limo pulls up and all these people are like, oh my God, who's here? Well, yeah, what's going on? <laughs> and this editor gets out and he's just like, yeah. And they're like, oh, never mind. Yeah, he's not, he's no one famous. <laughs> but that would, that would mean that a very limited number of people would have seen it. I mean, probably, well, thousands, maybe, but not many thousands, I wouldn't think. Yeah, I don't know how many, it was, it was not, I mean, it opened, it didn't open like in one theater. It opened in a hand, in, you know, around the New York area and around the LA area. But yeah, it wasn't long. I mean, so yeah, probably, probably only in the thousands of which I feel, again, I feel lucky, but only by, because it's a great story to be able to tell, not because I have enough memory to be really useful about. And by the way, I did that twice because I actually saw 2001, the opening weekend. So I also saw the 19 minutes of footage from that. And I could, but I was like eight years old, so I couldn't begin to tell you what the hell that was. (laughs) (laughs) But at least with that footage, I heard that they found it. And what, it was like an assault mine in Utah or something like that. And it's like, that happened what 2011 or something i remember reading about that and it was just like okay you know i'm like waiting like any day they're gonna release a new blu-ray or dvd with this footage and it has yet to show up and it's just ah come on well i have a feeling between the kubrick estate there was such a thing of not i mean i think when he cut that stuff out it was to never be seen again and i would be surprised given the history of strong strong control that his family has and also the loyalty that Warner Brothers has to him and his, the estate. I, I sadly don't know that we're ever going to see that footage. I hope I, I really hope I'm wrong because I think for film fans and scholars, it would be immeasurably valuable. But the thing I've always sensed in talking to anybody who was even vaguely around him was that, yeah, don't hold your breath. It's If he didn't want it seen, it's not going to be seen ever, ever, ever by anybody. So that was that's all I've ever managed to get in trying to nose around a little bit. Well, and then in interviews with the, um, the co-screenwriter of the script, she was talking about how that there were other things that were shot that were cut out, especially the idea of this scrapbook that's in the Overlook Hotel that they kind of make reference to at one point. Well, you can see the scrapbook on his desk and everything, but you don't necessarily see him finding it. You don't necessarily know exactly what it is. And there's a moment where Jack Nicholson, uh, Jack Torrance says, you know, I've seen your, your picture to this Delbert Grady character. And I know we're jumping right into the plot. I'm not, you know, doing too much of a lead up into this stuff. And it's like, okay, that probably was inside of the scrapbook. So yeah, there's other stuff out there that we've never seen. And then of course, you know, however many thousands of alternate takes to things when we were doing an episode on eyes wide shut, 
uh, I kept reading people saying, oh, no, no, it's not true. Stanley Kubrick doesn't do hundreds of takes of everything. And then everything I've read about The Shining, it's like, oh, yeah, we did 180 takes of that. You know, oh, yeah, we did 100 takes of Jack walking into the gold room. You know, no dialogue whatsoever, but we had to do that many takes. You know, Jack walked down the left-hand side of the, the hallway, right, walked down the right-hand side. Okay, now walk in the middle. Now try this. Now try that. So it's just however many millions of feet of film that were shot from this. I mean, imagine that outtake reel. Well, they shot for a, nearly a year. It's pretty hard to imagine for a film like that, which is just three actors, five, six, but three principals. But for your, yeah, your primary, you've just got the three. And then one of them being a child actor and the performance that Danny gives as a child actor. I mean, just phenomenal. And and, and he was, what, he was with six at the time or was he eight? I don't remember how old the actor was. He wasn't that much older than Danny. Yeah, he was, I mean, that, which is part of what makes it just so mind-blowing because it's such a seemingly um, conscious performance. You know, when you see little kids in movies, even if they're good, they're not, you know, there's always a feeling that you're not seeing a performance, you're seeing just like that's the kid. But where this movie demands that Danny as a character go that kid had to really act, and that's sort of amazing uh, at, at, at that age. I mean, you know, the, what, the, the whole thing of creating Tony and, and doing that thing with his finger and, and being able to keep that concentration, uh, it's really one of the more incredible child performances I can think of ever in a movie. So I guess we should talk a little bit more about the plot. I mean, just to kind of set it up a little bit. and. It's interesting. I finally watched the international version of the film. Um, a lot of folks don't necessarily know that the, you know, the U.S. version is roughly twenty-five minutes longer than the international version that went out. And so I was watching them. I had one on my laptop and one on the television. I'm just sitting there trying to compare the two, and I was thinking, oh yeah, it'll be a shot here, a shot there, a second here, a second there. No, it's huge chunks that are taken out of the international version. But then as I'm watching it, I'm just like, oh wow, I, I can't believe they cut this. Like the whole scene with the psychiatrist at the beginning when Danny has his first vision that we see in the film and she's checking him out on his bed and then having the conversation with Wendy. I mean, that whole thing is gone from the international cut. And I'm thinking that it makes sense to have it in certain regards. It makes sense because the shining so much of it is about mirrors, at least to me it is and, and mirror images and doubles and all these things. And it's interesting that we're cutting back and forth between, uh, Jack Torrance having his interview with, uh, what is it? Mr. Allman. And then we have Wendy Torrance having this interview with this doctor. So it's a nice kind of, you know, duality that we have going on there. But then when I thought about it later on, I was like, okay, the duality is very nice, but at the same time, a lot of the information that Wendy, talks about kind of comes out later on in the film so we do have the whole thing about this history of violence with jack comes out later on when he's talking to lloyd the bartender so we get that stuff again so you could say that it's superfluous but i do like the doubling of the two actions going one right after another did you ever hear either of you guys ever hear uh an explanation of why kubrick created the alternate version because i i actually never have of why he decided to create the different version for Europe and, and why he made the choices he made. No, I can't really see 
why he necessarily had to do that, unless maybe there was a contractual obligation that it had to be under two hours. I mean, this no, was it was that, that again no, from the little I know about it. I don't believe that he would. It was in a position that anything like that would ever be for could be forced on him. And plus, the U.S. version is barely over two hours. It wasn't like you know. I mean, they, he cut it well under. I mean, he could have cut less. It was just to get under two hours, but. I, I mean, everything I did ever hear was that it was his choice. I just never heard an explanation of why it was his choice. And I, 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 I don't know. I just, I'd love to get, I'd love if there was somebody near him who it ever would, would speak to that. That would be very interesting. That's very strange. There's, but there's so many things about the film that are very strange in that way. I think I'm sure that's part of its appeal. That's true. Well, I love, you know, it was interesting. I was talking with my family earlier today and said that we were going to be recording this episode and to hear their recollections as being, you know, film fans, but not like, you know, not maybe as into it as I am and just hearing their recollections of the shining. And even my brother-in-law being like, you know, from the very first opening shot, that movie just grabs you the way that the car is going down the road and you have that music. And I'm just like, Wow, that's amazing that you're already coming up with this stuff. And, and just to hear them, the, like him and my father-in-law just kind of bouncing back and forth, talking about these moments that they remember clear as day when it comes to the film. I mean, that's that's something to have a movie that is that indelible on so many people's memories. And of course, we, you know, we'll speak to this a little bit later as far as the kind of impact that this had on pop culture. But there's just, you know, the, a, a casual film fan sitting here talking about that opening music and how that just pulled you right into it because it just fills you with a sense of dread from the very first shot. And it's epic. I think that's probably the thing that distinguishes it rather than the way 2001 was distinguished from a lot of science fiction films that preceded it is that it was he took a, a malign genre and then treated it with tremendous seriousness and and, and enormous resources that just weren't available to other filmmakers and there's just something and i don't think it's ever really been equaled in that way and not that there haven't been large budget horror films since then but it i don't feel like there's a single one that i could think of that has that degree of uh, money, star power, and sophistication. Well, and I think that's what makes uh, so often, maybe not always, but so often the great filmmakers, the great filmmakers is because their stuff does trend. They'll often work in a genre and then somehow also transcend the genre. And Kubrick did it over and over and over again. But I mean, I think Polanski did it with Rosemary's Baby. I think, I mean, I, I think some of that's what makes these films sort of immortal is that it's a horror film that's so much more than just a horror film. And it's, it's works so beyond that. And, and that's, I think that's what makes kind of film geniuses, film geniuses, because most of us work in the same sorts of basic stories. And then a few people take those stories and take them so that, you know, 2001 went so far beyond what most people think of as science fiction, certainly film science fiction into such deep levels of philosophy and no notions of why are we here and, and existence. And, and, and of course it's always been a part of science fiction literature, but certainly uh, the, the level that it went to. And I, and I felt the same way about the shining is it took horror and made it about so many other things. And I think that's what makes great movies. Not always, but often. Keith, I want to ask you when it comes to Nicholson, I know one of Stephen King's complaints was that Nicholson was kind of a madman from the beginning of the film. And I think that a lot of that comes from King and other people's experiences with 
uh, Jack Nicholson at that time. That having seen him in one flew over the one flew over the cuckoo's nest, you kind of knew that he could play crazy pretty well. But for me, and probably for you, Vincenzo, and don't let me put words in my mouth. Like by the time I kind of knew who Jack Nicholson was, he was kind of already a really he was like Jack Nicholson with a trademark after his name. You know, he could do that Nicholson thing. Like I remember going to see the Witches of Eastwick and being like, "Wow, this guy just." does the same performance in every movie, not knowing what he was capable of, not being familiar with carnal knowledge and five easy pieces and all of these earlier roles that he was in. But by that time, he almost seemed to already be a kind of a parody of himself. You know, when they announced him as the Joker, it was like, well, that makes total sense. When you saw the film, what was your experience with Nicholson at the time? Me? Well, you know, again, I read the book first and, I, I was 11. I was pretty young. But I, the thing that really struck me about the book at the time was that it was so psychological, or at least it seemed psychological to an 11-year-old, and, and that the Jack Torrance character was uh, very conflicted and sympathetic. And, and the idea of identifying with the monster was, seemed pretty powerful and fresh to me. And I do remember when I saw the film, even as a kid, I, I, I actually thought it was a weaker version of that story for that reason, because Jack Nicholson or not, the way it's played is that he's just, uh, you know, unhinged from the beginning and he really doesn't have much of an arc as a character. And, and you, and I, I felt like something was lost in the translation and I, to some degree, I still feel that way, but I, it, it, it doesn't matter because the film is so seems to transcend all of those things. And I, it's so it's, it's its own singular thing. And it's just so powerful and immersive that, and and it's so imbued with who Stanley Kubrick is. And I could imagine, you know, another kind of filmmaker, like if Sidney Lumet made The Shining, mm-hmm. um, you might have that complex character development and interplay. But then that would be Sidney Lumet's Shining, and and Stanley Kubrick just never seemed to be on, honestly to be that interested. In character, I, I think he's interested in people and the human condition, but I never felt like his films were really ever examinations of character. And so that's Stanley Kubrick's Shining, and you can't have one without the other. I, so in that way, I kind of made peace with it. <laughs> mm. uh, it just is. And and I, I now, especially at this late age, I happily accept and embrace it. Um, I, in a way, I wouldn't have it any other way. But but I do remember just as a kid, like, oh, thinking, oh, that's disappointing. And, and in some ways, liking the book more. I, again, because I didn't respond to the film on a first viewing, I think it's because there was this larger-than-life quality to it that, that didn't feel very naturalistic or real, which shouldn't have been surprising because it was Kubrick, but yet somehow it was. And, and Nicholson's performance seemed very big and very – like he was crazy from the beginning – as I went back to the film repeatedly, um, and again, for me, it became a somewhat comedic film. I mean, it's horrifying, but it's also the more I saw him as sort of this almost cartoon of the American father figure and the madness that's right under the surface in masculinity and in fathers and in creative people. And to me, it was like, oh, yeah, Kubrick wasn't going for a naturalistic character. or And, and I agree. It wasn't, you know, it's not... It wasn't meant to be a character study. And, and the book is far more naturalistic in that sense, even though there's arguably more sort of horror elements in the book or more supernatural elements in the book. 
it's it's more a study of a man who's going through something. You know, it's, he's, a, he's a real person. And I agree that Kubrick doesn't tend to make movies about real people. He makes films about archetypes and things that are bigger than life. And to me, the more I saw it in that way, and that's where to me it did become a hyper black comedy about American families and about artists and about writing and about suddenly that performance made perfect sense because he's not interested in making you sympathize with him in the usual way or feel like, Oh, this is a poor, this is like, no, this is the madness. That's sort of the heart of like the family and every family has this insanity in it. And we're going to go right. You know, we're going to jump down 25 levels to some sort of insane meta level very quickly. And it's going to be about that stuff that's right under the surface, the murderous, the murderousness that's right under the surface of every family, just getting to come to that last inch to, to the, when it breaks out. So to me, it's just a very, the character has a very different intent in what it serves from the book. And in the book, it's really a, a real human being that you are supposed to identify with. And I don't, yeah, I agree uh, that I don't know that we're supposed to identify with him in that way. And I agree that Kubrick often did that. I mean, if you look at his films, He's not focusing on getting you to identify in the way that most filmmakers do. And yet somehow that's part of his genius because he's doing something different, which is making you look at thematic ideas more than more than behavioral ideas. Jack dreams several times in the film, and we never really go into his dreams. Like we see Danny's dreams like we see his visions i should say and i guess there's probably a difference here between dreams and visions and we'll see danny's visions and we really get to experience those visions and it's interesting when jack possibly has visions we are with him instead of witnessing you know it's interesting that when danny has a vision he might be in it he might be reacting to it and it seems more like he's reacting to it it seems like tony his the little boy who lives in his mouth is showing him different things rather than him necessarily maybe experiencing those whereas with jack he is living and breathing those moments where he is there with lloyd where he's there with delbert grady where he's in the gold room and at that big party so but when he's dreaming about chopping up Danny and and Wendy into little bits, we don't experience that with him. And I think that's a good way, too, to kind of keep us away from the character, to give us a little bit of distance, because we might sympathize with him more if we experience that terror. And I guess the other vision that I should talk about is Jack experiencing the horror of Room 237, which I, I find it interesting that, and I know I'm kind of branching off into a different tangent here, but We've talked a lot on the show this year about um, fairy tales, and there's a, a lot of fairy tale aspects to The Shining. And one of those things is that it almost feels like there's kind of a, a three wishes thing to The Shining, where Jack really wants a drink, so he ends up getting a drink. Jack's having problems with his wife, so he ends up getting a woman, or he finds a woman. Jack needs to get out of that larder at the end of the of the thing. And it seems like that the, the last one is the only one that maybe, maybe turns out good for him. Maybe not. Cause he ends up dead afterwards, <laughs> but the others, you know, especially the woman, I mean, it's kind of like one of these gin you know, wishes, this monkey paw kind of wish where everything turns wrong. When he finally looks at himself in the mirror, he realizes that he's holding a hag instead of this beautiful young woman. So it's uh, uh, just, 
anyway, just thinking about those those different experiences that Jack has as far as visions and dreams versus what Danny's experiencing, because as the movie goes on, I see a lot of parallels between those two people. Of course, you know, the father and the son aren't necessarily too far separated. I kind of take it that in some ways the film is much more Danny's point of view. Um, and we are identifying with Danny. I mean, Danny, and, and it, could, it arguably really is this, is is the protagonist much more than 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 Jack is, and in su- as such, we do see his visions much more clearly. And and I've always thought, thought myself going wondering how much of that it, the fairy tale elements. You know, is this a little kid's vision of family? Um, you know, again, we all boys tend to, particularly, and I guess girls may too, but experience our fathers as monsters. That's a very common, you know, fear. I mean, boys fear being killed by their father. There's a whole, there's edible self. There's, and so I, I always took that choice, those choices in terms of what we see and how we see it and what we don't see and the fairy tales. And it's very much a kid's view of a nightmare father. It's very much, and, and, and even, could it be, you know, that some of the scenes that we see Jack in are, are still Danny's vision in some way of his father um, and the, a vision of the grown up world and a vision of sexuality and a vision. And, and I'm not, I don't know that the film is literally playing with that, but I wonder if on some subliminal levels Kubrick was playing with it, because there does seem to be a clear choice that that Danny is the one who's sort of that really is 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 the point of view of the movie. I think he's absolutely the point of view of the film. I totally agree with that. <clears throat> but whereas in the book, Jack is definitely the protagonist. Which leads it even plays into things like, you know, there's the haunted house stuff, there's there's the stuff near the end where where Shelley Duvall's character sees this haunted house and it's very much like a, a like a movie that a kid might have seen on a Saturday TV show. You know, it's not you know, it's not a very modern version vision of, of of horror. I mean, the cobwebs and the skeletons and the. It's interesting that you know, as as those images are almost like something out of an old movie. And again, I, I and I may be project, projecting way too much. And it's always the interesting things about these great movies is you project yourself into them and your own experiences. And but you know, those were the kind of things that when I was a little kid. That was my image of like a haunted house. It was very much like the images he had of, of the, the, the cobwebs and the, and, the, and the skeletons and the man with his head cut in half. And that was like a kid's view of horror, much more than an adult 1980 view of horror. And, and, I, and I just found myself always wondering if that wasn't quite intentional in the same way. Yeah, why does the scene of a man receiving a blowjob from a man in a dog or a bear costume fill us with such terror, other than the Bella Bartok music that comes up over it? I mean, it really shouldn't be that scary, but that vision just freaks me the fuck out whenever I see it. And and again, for me, it's because it's, uh, and uh, this is my own interpretation and could be just nonsense, but it's uh, because kids are terrified about sex and don't understand sex. And to me... Again, if we're seeing, if in some level the movie is from Danny's point of view, that's a really, in the same way kids are trying to figure out what the hell sex is, it's like, I wonder if that's not part of it, because sexuality is so much part of his, his dad that he doesn't understand, and whether it's the woman in the room or whether that, that image, and again, I know it's not Danny's image literally, but it's the kind of thing that, you know, kids, when they when you hear little kids talk about sex and they don't understand it and there's and it could involve animals, could involve anything. Again, I have no idea if that was intentional on Kubrick's part, but it was my own in watching it. I found myself being thinking that was those images were all part of a very 
confused, innocent way of seeing the world. And that's what makes these things really horrifying because they don't make sense. All right, let's let's get scatological here. The first instance that we see Danny and kind of going at it from this movie's from Danny's point of view, he's in the bathroom, he's brushing his teeth, and then when you think about it, so much of the film, so many of the most important scenes in the film end up taking place in bathrooms. You know, the the whole the horrors of room 237 for both he and for Jack, Wendy terrorized at the end while she's in the bathroom, the uh, conference between Delbert Grady and Jack. I mean, it's interesting to see just how many moments of, of the film and it's two hours and 23 minutes. And I'd be curious to know just how much of that stuff is, how much of the running time is spent in the bathroom. So I don't know if that necessarily is, is pertaining to anything other than, it's it's really fucking interesting. It's one of those things where when I think about you know Pulp Fiction and Reservoir Dogs, it's just like wow, Quentin Tarantino really likes to shoot things in the bathroom, and there's a lot of bathroom in this one as well. There's a lot of bathroom in horror. Period. I think that has something to do with you know uh, horror revealing what is forbidden, and uh, and I know it was a big deal when Hitchcock did Psycho, so much so that. In, Correct me if I'm wrong. Didn't he shoot a shot of a toilet flushing because he knew the sensors would object and it was something he could remove? Yeah. First time we ever saw a toilet in, in a modern motion picture, I believe. So, yeah. So I think it's embedded in the genre. And I do. There's no question that when Stanley Kubrick took on The Shining, he I think he actually decided he wanted to make a horror film before he knew what it was going to be. I think he was looking for oh, if, I might be wrong. But I believe he was actually looking for a horror film. So I, I'm sure he was thinking about his horror movie. <laughs> uh, just like Full Metal Jacket was going to be his Vietnam film, given what I know about him. I'm sure he examined all the other great horror films forensically. And, uh, and in, in fact, and then when you think about Psycho, that was very much Alfred Hitchcock's reaction to the Henri Clouseau film Diabolique, which has a famous scene in the bathroom. And, and was, I think, the one film that Hitchcock felt trumped him. So, um, so there may be an element of that to this, too. It's like Stanley Kubrick is going to do his bathroom horror scene. Well, I've also read, and I think there's that validity to it, although I haven't, you know, I just remember reading this, that, that if you think about it, Kubrick has a lot of important scenes in bathrooms through a lot of his movies, that bathrooms actually run, uh, the theme of bathrooms is, 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 comes up over and over again. Um, whether it's in Full Metal Jacket, which is where, you know, the, the Vince D'Onofrio character commits suicide, whether it's um, in Clockwork Orange when, when the husband is locked in the bathroom while his wife is being raped. And, and I remember just there was some article somewhere that, that pointed out how many in, in how every Kubrick film there's at least one often darkly comic use of a bathroom. Uh, you know, in, in the Doctor Strangelove, it, you know, the, the introduction to uh, George e. Scott's characters, he's in the bathroom, and you know, I'll be right out of the bathroom, and he comes out. Of, I mean, that 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 you can find that in in, two, in 2001, there's the whole joke about the uh, zero gravity toilet, um, <laughs> and it was an interesting thing. It was not something I'd ever picked up on my own, but it was when somebody actually pointed out in, in an article, I went, "There is some truth to that. That there seems to be at least one." Use of it for a scene, an unusual use of a scene, for, a, for a scene, a bathroom, or at least a joke that involves a bathroom in a very specific way in every Kubrick film, or certainly most of the the ones from the, the peak of his career. And Vincenzo, you've brought up the book a few times, and I'm curious, 
I know one of the things that people have talked about over the years is the idea of Wendy Torrance and that I believe in the book, she is, I won't say necessarily a trophy wife, but she's portrayed more of like the hot blonde kind of thing, as opposed to (laughs) Shelley Duvall, who's a very interesting looking actress. And I was curious what your take of Shelley Duvall as Wendy is. I love her in it. And I, I know that that's a bone of contention with a lot of people that a lot of people find her un- well, just painful to watch because she's so hysterical and and, un- and, and very clearly meant to be unattractive. Um, but first of all, I, I think her performance is amazing. And, and it does go some way to helping us identify with Jack. And, and I, feel, I feel like I completely understand and believe the dynamic of their relationship. Uh, and uh, it, I mean, I can't imagine The Shining without Shelley Duvall. Is unthinkable. It's that it it there's something you know. Talk about a, a fairy tale. There's just something she's like right out of a Brother Grimm story. And I feel like there's something at the same time utterly realistic about her as the Midwestern housewife. And uh, uh, and yeah, no, she's 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 magnificent. And, I, and it has it has everything to do with Jack's frustration with her. I think if if Jack were stuck with, I don't know who would be the bombshell equivalent uh in the day maybe i don't know if he was stuck in the in in the overlook with um with uh uh faye dunaway Dunaway, there you go it would be entirely different situation and and i don't think we would understand jack's frustration he's clearly not happy in this marriage well and i i also love her the film and and again to me it, it it doesn't matter that in the same way that he completely reimagined Jack as a character. Uh, he, I think all these characters are, are different from the book and, and, and meant to be. And I think in a way, but making her much more mousy and sad and pathetic again, goes to that more, that, that thing of, of the powerlessness of the family against the male, the male ego thing. Um, I think it'd be very different if she's gorgeous. Um, and you know, maybe it's just because my own family, where I grew up with a father who was, had sort of scary and a mother who was sort of neurotic and, <laughs> and overdramatic, maybe that's why I identified with it so much. But um, to me, it just fed, again, thematically all the things it seemed to me he was playing with in terms of power structures in the family uh, and making her both hysterical on her own terms, but also more, much more vulnerable and much more somebody that he could manipulate more easily. Somebody, it sort of just changed all the dynamics. And again, it sort of went away from the book so far that it almost, it almost had nothing to do with the book anymore. And, and Keith, you made a very good point in that The Shining is on some level a dark comedy. And she's very funny in it. I mean, Shelley oh yeah, well, I mean, both the comic actors are so over the top that they they straddle this line between comedy and drama brilliantly well. I mean, along with all the very overtly funny moments. I mean, here's Johnny is horrifying, but it's hysterically funny. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of things in the film that that are out and out laugh inducing. But I also think that that on on deeper levels, I mean, and and, and you know, some of Jack's dialogue to her, while it's scary and horrible when he's you know going after her with the bat and. It's, there's like a dark, dark humor to it all, which is, I think, what makes it so powerful. Jack going up the stairs and doing that whole Wendy, light of my life, that whole thing is just, yeah, I can't help but laugh. And it's it's probably inappropriate, but it's very funny. And when he goes off on her about interrupting his typing. Oh, yeah. 
that always gets me. It reminds me of his speech from uh, Carnal Knowledge when he's when he's tearing into Anne Margaret, and that is one of the most hysterical pieces that I can ever listen to. I loved when Howard Stern would just play that whole, you know, yelling at at, at Anne Margaret, and that's the exact same kind of thing. Him just going off on this other person. I love it. And and really, the whole movie's got a twisted humor to it. I mean, whether it's Scatman Crothers in the motel room with the weird kind of naked painting or the, you know, I mean, I think there's a lot of clues in the movie that the movie is saying, you know, this is not all meant to be taken seriously, at least on a surface level. You know, it's, there's a playfulness in it. I mean, I think the Grady character's got a humor. I think all the scenes in the bar have a humor. Those scenes with Lloyd are really funny. I mean... You know, the whole thing with the sperm bank upstairs and the the, the contrast of Jack's character and, and how out of place he is in, in a world that we ultimately find maybe he's always been a part of. Uh, I, I mean, it, it's it's not it, – it, some of it's ha-ha-ha, laugh-out-loud funny, and some of it's just just creepy, disturbing funny, but, but very little of it is grim funny. Uh, and I think that, that's sort of what's so interesting about the movie is that it's all – you know, you want to be, you're creeped out, but there's also something just deliciously tongue in cheek about a lot of it. With, you know, this scene where Jack bounces Danny on his knee when he hasn't slept in days, and he's like, you know, you know, come here and sit on my knee. And it's like, again, this family image of the father and son, and yet it's the most creepy, sick, disturbing scene. But in a way that makes, at least me, maybe it's a sign of the therapy that I need, I haven't gotten, but makes me laugh as much as it makes me creeped out at the same time. Yeah. And him saying that same, you know, I want to stay here forever and ever yeah. and ever just a few minutes after the Grady twins were saying, you know, come and play with us forever and ever and ever. And it's just like, Oh God, it makes it even worse. And yeah, that crazy look on his face and the way that his hair is all askew just wonderful stuff. Which again goes to me of the thing of that's the way I think little kids often see their father. If you have a father who's got a scary side or a really angry side, you know, they look like a monster to you because they're big and they're, you know, so I think any of us who ever saw our father on a really bad day, you know, that's what they look like when you're six years old. You know, you don't have the adult perspective to go, oh, he's not going to really kill me. So you think he is. And then what, what Kubrick did that sort of genius said, well, what if he really was? And I know one thing that really made some people, especially Paul and Kale, mad about the film was the Scatman Crothers character. And especially at the end, after Danny has kind of reached out to him psychically that he needed help. And there's that whole arduous ordeal of, you know, him leaving Miami and coming here and going there and getting in the snow cat and just every single step of the way. And then when he finally reaches the overlook, he gets killed within two minutes. <laughs> But I love it, though. It pulls the the rug out from under you, because here you are, like, here comes the cavalry to save the day. A very unlikely cavalry. This old, bald black man is coming in, but, yeah, he's he knows. He can shine. He can receive Danny from Miami all the way from Colorado. Here he's going to come in here, and freaking Jack can take this guy out with just, you know, within seconds of him opening the well, door. Well, it does. It serves a character function too, because it's it's the first, I suppose, one and only time Jack actually kills somebody. So you know that's a right. line that's been passed. And there's that shot where he, Jack, rises up, having just axed uh, Scatman, and he has this look, and you just know that's it. He's going to kill them all. There's no, not a shadow of a doubt. 
Yeah, when we look at this film, there are a lot of uh, different Freudian interpretations of it. And one of the things that I appreciate, talking about changes from book to movie, the thing that I appreciate is the whole idea of kind of getting rid of the topiary animals and focusing more on that maze outside. And I love that the maze outside is kind of mirrored with the maze inside. You know, the, the I think one of those other really striking moments of the film is when we're following Danny around on his tricycle through the hallways of the overlook and the got just the the sound design of that the way that the, the tires sound on the rugs versus on the wooden floor and all that kind of stuff that's one of those things that stayed with me for years and years and just thinking about the way that Danny is navigating the overlook and the way that he's one of the only people that can navigate that maze outside. And of course, you know, it doesn't take a, a genius to think about, you know, that he's able to navigate the, the maze, but Jack isn't. He's seems like he could be more resistant to other things that might lead you into trouble. Whereas Jack kind of embraces those with open arm. I mean, especially the idea of the alcohol and the alcoholism doesn't take much for Jack to get kind of lost in his own maze, in his own mind. He really seems like, at the end of the day, kind of a weak character. I mean, really, he keeps talking about how he's going to write and how he's going to do this. And when you think about it, I mean, the Overlook is his last chance. And he kind of makes mention of that about, you know, the responsibilities that are on his shoulders, you know, with this job. This is his last chance to kind of make anything of himself. He's taking this opportunity to become a writer. And the only thing we end up seeing him write is that whole all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy, which the first time I saw it, it, it kind of scared me and everything. And then the more I watch it, the more I see this movie, the more I see him typing so feverishly early on in the movie. And then when Wendy discovers the manuscript, it's like, oh my God, he's been typing that the whole time. There is no moment where he switched from a manuscript to that, mm-hmm. you know, that, 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 the chant, you know, and it's just like, oh my God, that it just really a light bulb finally went off in my head. Just to see him now, those early moments in the film where he's typing away and you're just like, he's already lost it. He is already completely gone. But I think that the maze component of it is central to why the film is so powerful and memorable and successful because it is, of course, this uh, manifestation of what's going on in Jack's own head. I mean, they're kind of the overlook probably is his head in some level and they're all inhabitants of it, including himself. And, uh, and then there's just this quality that the movie has where it's one of those – there are other movies that possess this as well, but that I love, where, where I, I feel like that place actually exists. And I feel like I could get lost in that. In fact, I do get lost in that maze every time I watch the movie. I feel like I could peer around corners and there would be something there um, rather than just being a, a film set. Well, you, has, you made a really good completely- film about – about mazes. I mean, you made, I mean, I mean, you, I, if I'm probably embarrassed wrong, you did Cube, right? That's right. Yeah. And that was a really, really good film again about essentially the maze and a maze is a metaphor for our own internal stuff. So, so I definitely see a connection between your film and this in terms of the thematically. I can't really quantify it, but the shining is a part of my life. That's why I can't even judge the movie. To me, it goes beyond being just a movie or a book. I feel like in some way it's, uh, something I've lived and, 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 and 
that location, the Overlook, is, I mean, obviously it's a character in the film as much as any of the living, breathing people. And it just, there's something utterly captivating about that place. It's kind of an immersive, almost VR type thing where you feel like, well, every time I see the movie, I just enjoy my stay at the Overlook. I just, I just like visiting. And, and I, I mean, it's, it's also, of course, it's terrifying on some level, but it, it's, it's utterly captivating. And there are very few movies that attain that. Um, and, and I suppose part of it is just the fact that somehow he had the power and vision to decide that he was just going to build it. And, and I don't, again, I don't think that's ever been equaled. Guillermo del Toro made a fantastic set for Crimson Peak, and there have been other examples, but, but this is the one that's never been topped in the 40-odd years since it was released. No, I, I, I agree. I think that set, and the fact that it's not a real place, and the fact that, it, that the lighting as well as the production design are so remarkable, but they're not just like everything else that changed from the book. They're not naturalistically real. I mean, when you look at that place... As some people pointed out, the, the geography of it doesn't even always make sense, which I'm sure was very carefully plotted out and very intentional that it didn't. Um, but the look of it is it's sort of beyond real into something more fairy tale and yet seems naturalistic on the surface. And I think that goes very much to Kubrick's style. It goes very much to the themes of the story. Uh, but, yeah, I think if they had just shot it in the real hotel or shot it in some place, you know, again, that would be the Sidney Lumet version, which would be a very interesting film, but a very different film. But the immensity of that set and the beauty of that set and the beauty of the artificial lighting that was created, and the, it really helps it, take, as you say, be almost like a VR experience. It takes you into another place and you're entering a, a dream world as well as a maze, as well as a fairy tale. And that's part of the magic of the movie. And the funny thing is the average moviegoer probably doesn't have any idea that's a set. I mean, I would think the average non-film fan would just think, oh, they found this great place to shoot the movie. But had they really done so, I don't think the film would have been nearly as powerful as it is. Well, I remember when I saw, uh, this would be in the early days of DVD, I saw the Vivian Kubrick documentary, which is really like one of the most, it's absolutely the most captivating making of documentary I've ever seen. Because it was... The film had existed for me just as a movie for so long. I had never really seen any behind the scene photos or, I, you know, and then there's a shot, a really wonderful shot in the documentary where you're following a crew member down a hallway inside a studio and they turn a corner and suddenly you're in the maze and it's night and it's snowing. And I had never, it never even occurred to me that that maze was indoors. Like, I, I mean, I knew that the, the overlook was a set, but I always thought, well, they must have built the maze outdoors, but it's, it's in the studio. And there's something, it's just, it's, it was actually one of the most like powerful filmmaking images I've ever seen. The power of cinema where you were just, it's like magic. You're just suddenly something that you had always thought being one way is in fact, entirely the opposite in reality. Yeah. And to hear about that maze, like, oh yeah, it was just, you know, plywood with all of these branches nailed to it. It's like, wow. That it was, and yet it was such a comprehensively constructed maze that the crew actually got lost in it. Just the snow effects were fantastic to realize that they didn't shoot this in the winter, that that's not real snow they're traipsing around in. It's just like, really? You know, we, everybody's used to it now, but at the time, the Steadicam was a very new cinema instrument. So that in those incredible scenes, whether it was in the interior maze of, of him on the uh, of hit him on the uh, the big wheel that he rides inside, or whether it was out in the maze in the climactic sequence, 
there had never been scenes that looked like that before because that piece of equipment would really changed a lot of modern filmmaking was just coming into use. So I remember sitting in the theater and I do remember for all of us was like, Oh my God, this is, this is new cinema language. And that doesn't happen very often. And uh, you were dressed to kill. <laughs> yeah. and that has like one of the, 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 the great steady cam sequences in it, which would be, Almost at the same time, right? Yeah, it was a little earlier. I mean, because the Steadicam came out like a couple years earlier, and Dress to Kill was, I think, shot just before. But now there's actually, actually, I don't know. I have to go back and see which. But it was, it was, they were around the same time. But I don't think anybody had seen anything like what was done in in The Shining. I mean, not, not that I can think of. You know, there have been some uses of it, but that was a whole other. I mean, you know, again, now people would, wouldn't even realize because we've all seen it so much. It's so much a part of the film vernacular that we see every day in every movie, every TV show. But but I, I'm old enough dating my carbon dating myself here. You know, I'm old enough that that I really was aware watching those scenes that, oh, this is like changing movies the way I'm sure the first use of a crane did or, or whatever. I mean, where it was like this is something you didn't know you could do. Yes. And it really shows Kubrick had his most brilliant because it was a tool that had been around for a little while, but nobody had taken it to that level. I mean, it, right. and it kind of sort of defines the movie visually. There's something about the film and I, I don't know how conscious it is, but I think one of the things that makes it feel, one of the things that makes it so unexpectedly frightening is the fact that it's shot in such an ac- academic way. I mean, there, there's a couple scenes that are in darkness that have, you know, what we would think of as typically horror lighting. But by and large, it's we're in that kind of Kubrickian, brightly lit, mundane kind of space. And and so it's the it's the clinical quality of it, the fact that you don't feel like a filmmaker is trying to put one over on you and push you into a place where you're supposed to feel horrified that actually conversely makes it more frightening. Well, yeah, those scenes with Lloyd, I mean, the lighting in there... It's a little spooky kind of coming up from the bar and everything, but I have to say the whole gold room feels very warm to me, and it feels like a place that I would like to go, and it feels like a bartender I would like to shoot the shit with, even if he does kind of look at you <laughs> askance a little bit. You know, and, Turkle just plays that so well. And it's a really good point, because there's very little lighting in the film that is traditional horror. I mean, and it, it is bright. It's clinical. It's these people are – it's almost like all the characters are being examined under a microscope. You know, there's that, there's that great shot – and a great effect of, of, of Nicholson looking down into the maze model. And then we cut and we see the little people in it and we realize in some way he's looking at them as if a monster from above. But the whole movie is sort of that way, taking one more level out. It's a, right. it's a very clinical examination of this very sick and crazy and twisted world and family. And it's bright fluorescent lighting in there a lot of the time. And it's it's you, you can see into the corners. It's And in fact, again, the only times it gets really horror movie lighting is when it's almost being a parody of a horror movie. And it's, it's those few scenes near the end that are clearly playing with those tropes. But whether it's the blood command or the elevator, there's almost nothing in the film. And, I, and, and I'm embarrassed to admit I hadn't really thought about it until you just made the point, but it's a really good point that there's almost nothing in that film that's shot the way we think of horror as being shot. And, and it, it sort of, again, gives us a whole different look at what the nature of the horror of this family is. And that makes it even more powerful, I think, when he does an unusual angle. You know, you mentioned Clockwork Orange and the scene in the bathroom in that and that kind of 
the the under camera, I believe, if memory is serving correctly, we get that kind of under camera going on. And we get that when Jack is pleading to Wendy when he's in the, yes. the, the freezer, the meat locker or whatever. And just that is one of those few moments where you get a really unusual camera angle, which makes it stand out even more because it has been so clinical up to this point. That's another amazing moment in the documentary. Because you see him, like you actually see him go, oh, what if we do this? Right. <laughs> and it feels like such an indelible thing. You know, it's such a, you just can't imagine that scene without that shot. And and then you also kind of assume that he's sort of like Hitchcock, you know, everything was thought out in tremendous detail. And, you know, there wasn't like an inch of that set that hadn't been reexamined in 20 different ways. And and then you just see him going, oh, yeah, what if we put the camera down here? Jack, come over here. And there's a guy holding a light bulb under Jack Nicholson. And all of a sudden it feels very rubber band and paper clips and uh, improvised. And that was, it was really exciting to see that. But, and, you, and yeah, and you're right. I think that that's a moment in the film where it kind of departs from this sort of single point perspective head height sort of angle and goes into something that, you know, we might associate with a horror film, but in an, but in a, an unusual way at a moment where we wouldn't necessarily, a, a more pedestrian and even there, wouldn't still, do that. I mean, it's still bright and lit up. I mean, it, it, it's hmm. an unusual angle. It's an, it's a sort of very expressionistic angle, but it's still in the middle of this fluorescent lit meat locker. You know, it's not, it's not dark and spooky. It's weird, but it's not horror in the traditional way that we're used to seeing it. All right, so let's go ahead and take a break, and we're going to play a pair of interviews from some of the people behind the scenes of The Shining. We're going to hear from Doug Milsom and Garrett Brown right after these brief messages. Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, AdamNeat.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts, including free shipping, when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com. Hey, Iris, you know what we should do? We should try to get Fred Olin Ray on the show. Why would he want to come on our show? Hi, this is Fred Olin Ray, and you're listening to the Badasses, Boobs, and Body Count podcast. Okay, what about Olaf Ittenbach, Germany's Splatter King? Uh, that'd be great, but I doubt he speaks any English. I'm Olaf Ittenbach, and you're listening to the Badasses, Boobs, and Body Count podcast. What about the director of Blood Sucking Freaks? 
Joel M. Reed. Isn't he dead? This is Joel M. Reed, and you're listening to Badass Boobs and Body Counts Podcast. No, Iris, he's not. Hello, I'm Mike, host to the Badass Boobs and Body Counts Podcast. And I'm Iris, co-host of the Badass Boobs and Body Counts Podcast. Every week in I, Iris, discuss lesser-known action, exploitation, and horror cult cinema. Mike and I discuss films like The Black Godfather, The Beast That Killed Women, and Biozombie, to name just a few. And every now and then, we get to speak with the people behind all the films we love to talk about. Okay, how about this, Mike? Let's get Andy Sidaris on the show and talk girls, guns, and G-strings. Um, yeah, Iris, he's actually really dead, but we did manage to talk to his wife, Arlene, way back in episode 20. Well, I suppose that's the next best thing. Yeah, I suppose so. So the Badasses Boobs and Body Counts podcast can be found on iTunes, on Stitcher's Smart Radio, and on SoundCloud. Just search for the BB&BC podcast to start listening today. You can also visit the show's website at badassesboobsandbodycounts.com. Okay, Iris, did you keep track of the boob and body counts on the film we're discussing next week? Uh, no, I thought you were doing that this week. No, I'm no, I no, uh-uh. no. I've seen this. Uh, boy, no, it we're was gonna have you. To, it was you. Uh, look, from now on, let's both do that. Okay, that sounds good. This is Adam Spiegelman from the Cult Movie Podcast, proudly resents, and you listen to my favorite movie podcast, The Projection Booth. I know it's messed up, right? You have worked on so many amazing things over the years. It seems like you're still working, correct? I do do a bit, yes, while I have my sanity in hell. And yes, <laughs> I'm still looking for that gold statue. I mean, you know, it's eluded me. But I guess I, I might have stuff coming up later that could prove quite valuable. There's a couple of jobs that I have been involved with. But uh, the, the trouble is now that, that they all get become sort of, you know, lower end of the, of the budgets. They become sort of slasher film videos and they get lost somewhere in the mix don't they and uh, never get really shown so we need a feature that's going to get me back really out there i think better harvest might be one of them which i think is soon to be picked up and released uh, early next year which we shot in ukraine yes all, all shop at camp all light and all that sort of early barry linden look really but on video so yes there's still um there's still a lot of uh uh, energy there waiting to be released and uh, uh, many cameramen are out there now so I think uh, I belong to a sort of class that uh, is the established look so it may be too conventional for most people I don't know there we are but there we are <laughs> you know conventional <laughs> you know the sort of uh, that old school look but I, I do work with new new directors now and I, I do commercials and uh, in fact I'm doing a music pop video next week so um, you know, it's fun to play with this new stuff, but it, for me, it's uh, it isn't uh, the business of working with film, you know, which I prefer to do. Now, you've been in the business for, what, 50-some years now? Yes, I think it is. Yes, it is, yeah. You do pick up a tip or two at the time. You know that, don't you? Oh, yeah. Yes, you do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're doing a thing on The Shining, are you? It was a while ago now, Mike, you know. <laughs> and I wasn't the DP, as you know, I wasn't the DP, but I did do three with him as an assistant and, uh, and I, you know, of course I shot one for Kubrick so I did four films with him but I know him, I knew him um, I would say it's better than anybody probably knew him really but there we are yeah. but that's not to do with The Shining that's to do with the film they're talking about the film aren't we not him personally I thought everything has ever been known that's been said about The Shining would be kind of historic now in a sense you know laid down is there anything new that you want to reveal that uh, might make it different from earlier 
do you? I don't know. I mean, I do want to know a little bit more about you and about your career. Oh, because no, no, I don't think. Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, you've worked with some really interesting people. I mean, one of your first gigs working on Modesty Blaze with Joseph Losey. I mean, he's a little bit legendary. I mean, he is, yes. I think I preferred that. I, I mean, I was associated in a sort of junior capacity then. And you know, you don't think in that area so much when you're first assistant or assistant cameraman or even a camera operator. It's not until you really you're, you become sort of more involved with the integration of the story scripts and, um, and uh, direction or, and the look. Do you really pay more attention in that, in, in that league? I mean, rubbed off a lot all the people I work with. Of course you do. But whether you adopt the style you, 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 you know, you want to invent or, or just feed off what you already, uh, have learned through watching masters and you're trained by masters, you tend to feel you can't compete, but you do have adopt a style of your own finally, which I think is in, you know, is individual to yourself. So, but working with Stanley, you, you, his style of directing changed, didn't it, from every film he ever did. So you can't say he was typecast and, He's directing more than I would with my lighting, you know? And that's what it is. And it's, 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 you're never stuck with how you feel your style is. You, you have to work with directors that, uh, you can vary your work. And often I, I work with directors and say, did you see this? Did you see that film? Well, none of which I've ever shot, but they tend to think you're flexible enough and the ingenuity of the Brits to invent and do a style and maybe a technique which is different suddenly comes from it. And I think that's what. Kubrick learned, and that's what I learned from him, you know, varying your style. And, I mean, Kubrick's The Shining is full of dual imagery. I mean, his symmetry and mirrors and, and all that stuff helped, you know, I think, with the look and helped Holcott with what he eventually brought to it. Um, but it's still a mirrored image of what the director sees, really. And, you know, Jack at the beginning... Jack, who has always been there in the shiny, has always been there, has an emblem of something uh, mirrored in the imagery. And you have to get the audience hanging in there for that. That's something you don't learn when you're an assistant coming through the crew system. You know what I mean? So modesty plays all right. So I thought Joe Losey was all right. He liked me a little bit. So that's all that I cared about. The rest was academic because your job was not integral with uh, any more than the cameraman, because I was there to serve him, mostly as a crew. That that was the system I came up with. You know, you worked as a team, so, but you're, you serve your immediate uh, uh, head, as it were. I, I didn't actually... What did you think of the film? I don't know. I mean, I've been questioned twice about Modesty Blaze, and it always uh, amazes me how, at the time, I never felt it was much good, really, but, there, you know, I felt maybe... They should do a Bond meets Modesty Blaze. And Monica Vitti seemed all right in the part. I never thought she was, you know, great. But there we are. But it was a diverse thing for, for, for Losey, wasn't it, to do that. I mean, all the stuff he's ever done, controversially integrated into something monolithic. So this was some something else, wasn't it, really? Don't you think? It, it somehow struck a chord, didn't it? The viewing public. I never thought it so, but there we are. What did you think? Well, it has a, a great look to it. I'm not sure I necessarily like the plot as much as other things, uh, but it it really kind of reveled in that like pop look to it. You know, it reminded me a lot of uh, Danger Diabolique, uh, the Mario Bava film. Absolutely, yes, it did. Yeah, yeah. So it's a real pleasure to look at. But is that what's important? I mean, it had two cameramen. You know that, don't you? Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, so it had a uh, Dave Bolton as a cameraman. He started the picture. He did the Amsterdam scenes. 
And then I think Joe didn't somehow figure him and got replaced by Jack Hilljard. So, which is more a conventional character, a lot of saturation, high contrast. I mean, chrome up, contrast down, different look altogether. So you had two different looks, really. You had the English look, American, or Amsterdam, and then, and of course, the, you know, where were we? Sardinia, somewhere. So the Italian flavor to it. So that was what produced, I suppose, something of interest to me. You know, I was hoping that they, they would do one with him and her and, uh, the only guy pleasure I got from Mosley Blade was meeting Antonioni, because she was going out with him at the time. So I, I was, and I went on to, I actually did a film with Antonio called Blow Up, uh, as a, an assistant cameraman. So he, he remembered my name, which was actually quite, uh, interesting, actually, to be reminded. You know, he remembered me, at least, you know, from when he met Monica again on The Shining, uh, when we went to, uh, um, Talmina, where we were shooting it. Now, was The Shining, was that your first uh, job working second unit? Um, no, I did main unit on The Shining. Yeah, I, no, I did, um, I, uh, I'd already done Barry Lyndon when Cooper, and I did a lot of the Clockwork Orange, about nine weeks, ten weeks of Clockwork Orange. The second unit came up, as it, as it was, as a first uh, opening to the movie, because I did all the sort of Oregon stuff and uh, the, the Oval of Timber, Timberline Lodge, the exteriors in Oregon, which I shot for him. And then, of course, he went on to do the film. That was the title introduction, I think, to the film. And afterwards, I was the, yes, I was the assistant, first assistant cameraman on, on The Shining. Yeah, John Alcott was the cameraman. What kind of challenges did you face when you were working on that film? Because it's such a, a technical masterpiece. Now, I think the technical masterpiece was, for me, was, was Barry Lyndon, because that was much more technical, you know, in that we had to work with these super-duper, High-speed lenses, which we got from, well, you probably know all about the history of the shine, of, 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 Barry, sorry, of, of, of Barry Lyndon, because it was candlelit stuff on film, which was very different from The Shining, which was, I think, more conventional in many, many ways. I think the, the interesting part about The Shining, I think, was the, um, it was a masterpiece of modern horror, you know, playful, as it, as it is hair-raising. Uh, I, I mean, I mean, I always thought that, you know, to take the shining at face value was, was a mistake. It was no, the, it, was, it, it had no face, just masks. You know what I mean? It, it provides us with an incomplete sort of chopping puzzle of pieces that were missing, but pieces we don't know fit the puzzle. So the challenge to make is the shining maze. The maze, I think, was something that um, unblemished, you know, make it more uh, understandable, to, if you like, you know, in a way. You know. But, um, um, you know, yes, it's a, I, I, in my sense of the blunt symmetry and those endless corridors and pattern carpets that made it more kind of, uh, didn't it, shaky, empty halls and doors, that sort of thing, yeah, don't you think? I mean, my job, the, 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 the camera operation as such by Garrett, I think, made it much, that, that was the endless corridors, I think, which he brought to it, the emptiness. It's under the guise, of course, of a man that knows Garrett's work, he considered when it was first described about the, the Shining to Stanley and Garrett's work when he saw it, I think that he kind of saw it as a, as a carpet, of, a, a carpet magic, a floating carpet. And he used used it, I think, to build that suspense, you know? Well, yeah, it's like the camera is is feels like it is the overlook, kind of keeping track of everybody. Yeah, that's right, yeah. And it disturbs you, doesn't it? It's, you know, it's centricity and the 
ambiguity forced you into rewatching. I've seen it a couple of times now, and each time I'm wanting to wanting more detail and a closure of the novel. But there is no closure, is there really? And that's what I find interesting. <laughs> you know, there is no closure. <laughs> Well, you talked about that symmetry uh, of both the story and then, of course, the way that the shots are aligned. I mean, it just it, it does really play up that whole idea of the mirrors because the mirrors are just everywhere in that film, it feels like. I don't know where that comes from, do you know, on this video. Um, I mean, I, I've always found Stanley a sort of, I don't know, he's a, he's, he's a strange guy, you know. Um, I found this with Full Metal. I could never, having done, what, three with him on Full Metal, I still went going into it never quite knowing him what he was going to do next. I think he made movies to get himself through a bad case of chronic social anxiety. <laughs> you know, I mean, I always figured he was a disembodied enigma who, who put his public persona in terms of what's on the screen, you know. I mean, with Barry Lyndon, he took a talking novel and made it into an intensely visual film, a ravaging set of images on a single script of celluloid. I mean, and then you look at Full Metal Jacket is completely the reverse. <laughs> it's a dull imagery. It's nothing like it. And, you know, so to go from that to, you know, Barrel Bar- 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 to Full Metal, um, it's, you know, you've got to understand the, the, the guy that's doing it. And, and this is why I'm so screwed up now, because I don't know myself anymore. You know, so you work with him, you never quite know yourself afterwards. He just takes you over. So you adapt to whatever you who you're working with. I, you know, I think it's um, tough to think that I've had a lot, I've worked with a lot of directors since as a DP. And although standing was hard, I always find I, I, I've had a much less hard time for a lot less talented directors than him. You know what I mean? Because I was more on, I suppose, more understanding him towards the end. You know, I was hoping to do Napoleon with him afterwards. I didn't do Eyes Wide Shut. I, was, I couldn't do it with him. Uh, but then, you know, we're not talking about him, we're talking about The Shining, right? So, you know, so what more do you want to know about The Shining? <laughs> There's always the, the talk of how many takes things took and how it would take such a toll on some of the actors like a, a Shelley Duvall or a Scatman Crothers. But what does that do for the crew? What is it like when when yeah, you are... It just keeps us there longer and we like it. We don't often want it to end. And I never heard him lose his rag anyway. He had a quick pop at it at one point, but I mean, otherwise he doesn't. He doesn't, he's not demonstrative in any way, he's very controlled. But I mean, he is lethal, he doesn't like somebody, he won't tell them, he just gets somebody to fire him. So sometimes new people showed up on the set, one thing or another. But um, I think he doesn't like, um, he likes to know people that are, um, he can feel comfortable with. That, that's important to him, you know, and uh, who like him, and that's what you have to do. I mean, you know, from the grips to the first AC to the gaffer, there are people he wants back all the time. He won't do pictures out Lou Bo, he won't do pictures out me or Brian Cook, he won't do he'd have to have Garrett back. You know, these are people that matter to him more, really. And, uh, uh, because, you know, he always when I asked him once about what a cameraman does. And he actually said to me, I think uh, if it's technical, whatever it is, if it's uh, understanding, it's unquantifiable. Whatever you do is, as a cameraman, it's unquantifiable. If, if you can't apply your authorship on something original, and everything he did was uh, original, so it's not just simple recording uh, of a uh, you know moving uh, collection, collection of moving objects. It becomes <laughs> something <laughs> integral with uh, which wrapped up in the story, and that really the technique uh, uh, is no replacement for good ideas, 
any more than uh, um, other things are more important than than the content. The content is the script. The script is what governs it all. You know, if we're all in part of that, bringing that to life, then we're all part of the his creativity, if you were. I mean, the, that 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 I mean, that's that's what it's about, really, isn't it? <laughs> I think part of his creativity. I mean, yet I think Paul Metal Jacket was quite interesting, really, in many ways. I, I enjoyed as a DP on that one. It went on and on and on, as they always do. So it does take it out of the crew. But I think you're working with somebody who's who you adopt for quite a space of time in the chapter of your life. It's uh, it's it's uh, it's almost a marriage that takes off. So you're there for the for the run of the show. I mean, Barrett refused to grin sometimes. I enjoyed it mostly. I did. Yeah. Well, it seems like Full Metal Jacket must have been a real challenge because it almost feels like you're shooting two movies in one. The the style of the first half is so different than the style from the second half. At least that's how I see it as a viewer. I think it was, wasn't it? Yes, yes. I had the sort of humiliation and fatigue of base training under the verbal abuse of a drill instructor and the chaos of way and the Tet invasion. Again, the, the cruel absurdity of war. He's had this before. Um, the film's iconic code is no heroes, no easy solutions, no happy endings, that sort of thing, you know. So the environment, uh, while not real, evoked a mood of war, hopelessness, and I think that's what it, what it was, the confusion and sense of, uh, of part of his plan, well, he was to mold his actors into a, uh, form he imagined a war zone to be, you know, born to kill and aggression on one hand and sort of altruism on the other. I mean, we had a ruined city of way which is shot in the Isle of Dogs, you know, and Beckton Gasworks, which <laughs> for Dockland de- demolition. And, you know, with a few palm trees, we added that subtropical effect. I mean, that was brilliant, really, on his part. I, mean, I thought so. You know, so, um, you know, there you go. I believe that uh, most people thought we shot there, you know. I did go to and we didn't shoot anything there, just to get a bit of background stuff on it, you know, but... Uh, Urban warfare is something different, you know. I think you were saying a lot of things which probably a lot of other films at that time didn't have to say. I mean, you could probably say a lot more than Apocalypse was trying to. Although I enjoyed Apocalypse immensely, but you know, it's it's it's, it's a bit like what he does with Barry Lyndon. I mean, there's pastel Renaissance paintings and illuminated big candles. They're all breakthroughs, aren't they, with him? They're all breakthroughs and something new, uh, which has never been done. They're now doing it, of course, because the candles all over the bloody place. But nobody did them the way we did it on Barry Lyndon with film. Because it's very different to get that exposure. You know, we're very slow film and very fast lenses. Now it's very opposite, where you've got sensors that can see in the dark, and you don't need fast lenses, so you're not limited to that. But the fact of the matter was, was the lenses being super fast, uh, and they still are the fastest lenses in the world. It was the out-of-focus part of the Seems a bit interesting to me. I think they call it Bokeh, B-O-K-E-H. So then, is that the word Bokeh? I don't know. It's, it's the it's the it's the photography of the out of focus part of the scenes, which quite collectively, individual to an essence, painters. You know, it doesn't fall off completely, but there is an overexposure in one area and an underexposure in another. But it's always that part of the scene which you can still see into, which is the darkness. It's always illuminated. There's always something moving. It doesn't just go solid. And uh, so mystery and beauty is really the real art stuff, which, of course, that is, you know. I think the same with The Shining to some extent, although 
a lot of it, in my view, was overlit and looked too dark. I thought it should be should have been darker. I didn't want to say that with my DP, but I felt that. I said to John, shouldn't there be more mysterious in the winter? Shouldn't there be lights out, just coal fires and a desk lamp? So very blazing in the way it did. But there, there were things which, at the end of the day, worked. So it, it, it doesn't help to formalize opinions when you're talking to people like Kubrick, you know? You don't mention that. But um, I, I felt that afterwards, you know? It didn't have a lot of atmosphere. The film didn't. It had a lot of collective images, which were strong in, and telling. But at the same time, the lighting, I don't think, was dramatic. And, you know, um, but these are things, if I were doing it today, we did a reshoot of The Shining. That's what I would do. I'd make it much darker, much more interesting, intimidating. But it's still a classic in terms of uh, horror, if you want to call it that. <laughs> I mean, the photography has evolved more now from art to science. I mean, you know, you've got linear, the simplest equation now, sort of Albert algebra, the product of constant, algebra is the linear, is the product of constant. So, I think it should be more holistic, developing the whole summary parts into the skills and techniques like it used to. You know, that way we can bring something more to the screen in terms of looks and things like that. And none of the masters have gone there. I don't think we can do that with the, with the advent of, I think the dullness of, 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 of the dullness has killed the inventiveness really through the, uh, through, uh, video. I do honestly. I do. Yeah. I was curious about your experience on Ragtime and what you did on that. Well, I was, again, the, the assistant, you know. I mean, we had Carl Foreman. And, uh, not Carl Foreman. Uh, yes, she, what do you mean? I mean? What do you want me to say? I don't know, Mike. I mean, I was there to do a job that was as the assistant cameraman. So, you know, Miroslav Ondrasek shot it beautifully. And Milos Foreman, you know, together, two checks, made that picture what it was, I felt. You know, so my experiences were there to be a good boy and keep it together, you know, keep the camera running and making sure everything was in focus and any breakdowns and uh, with, with, with cameras I was able to fix. So that was it. That was the, the crew coming out through the cruise system. That was part of it, really, basically. You know? I mean, nowadays, I think um, maybe a lot of insistent cameramen move on to being um, DPs because it's easier, to be honest with you. I think assistant cameramen work now is extremely difficult to do. I mean, the one thing about the imagery now, it can't be replaced if it's, if it's, if it's not in focus. Uh, you know, maybe to some extent it can, but you know, it's important that the, uh, you have a, a strong, clear image of what you're looking at. And if that's out of focus, then you know, the focus pull is not doing its job. So that's what, you know, you, you know about the camera crew system, do you? How people come in as clapper loaders, focus pullers, operators, and then become DPs? That, that's the crew system. I mean, they don't probably do that now. But I was like 10 years as a clapper boy, if you want to call it that, and 15 years as a first AC. So I did huge amount of films during that time. Big, big top directors. They could have kept doing it because I had a wife and kids to feed, and it was paying well. I moved up to operating in a very short time on films like uh, Highlander, the first Highlander, which I operated, which I thought was brilliantly done. As an operator, I didn't shoot it. Gary Fisher did. And then I think with plenty with Fred Skepsy, which I did as an operator with Mel Street and that. And these blokes were fantastic directors. I mean, Fred did one of the best for the Skepsy, you know, Child of Billy Blacksmith and, you know, all those films which he'd done. I thought were bloody incredible. And then, and then I talked in King David with, with uh, Beresford. 
Uh, anyway, you know, the, the, and then I got the call to do, well, I got the call first to go to Australia to do a shooter picture for David Hemmings, who wanted me to DP a shoot called Race to a Yankee Zephyr, and I did Wild Horses in Australia. Then I got the call from Kubrick, having done three with him as an assistant, to shoot for Metal Jacket. I couldn't believe I'd been offered it, to be honest with you. I mean, I no idea. You know. But there we are. He felt comfortable with me. He liked me. And that's what mattered. And together we did it together with me and, you know, and him. <laughs> so it's good, isn't it? I mean, that that's, that's something which I have to owe him uh, a tremendous amount of gratitude for, for allowing me to. And it helped my career, of course, immensely. I took off after that for a long time. But it's always a reward. I mean, the pain is 24-7, really, but the prize is always part of his creation. And, you know, of all those films I've done, I still remember more the films I did with him. I know he had he must have had a tremendous amount of trust in his crew and his cast. Was there a lot of room for, I don't know if ad-libbing is the right term, or just kind of being able to, did you feel that it was an open environment in order to make suggestions of this might work better than that? No, not really. No, I don't think so. No, no. I mean, you know, I don't think any of them did really, but um, I mean, you had Matthew Modine just got married, had a child, reached its first birthday, all during the production of Full Metal Jacket. So, you know, <laughs> he, I mean, whatever Matthew might have added, it made no difference to the fact he was still there for all that time, you know. It's, it's a marriage. I mean, uh, so yes, yeah, so you're, you're, in, you're in for the, in for the hall when you do it. Then, and yeah, that's probably why. He did offer me, actually, uh, eyes shut. I thought I couldn't do the hall. You know, I couldn't do that hall. My, my, my wife wasn't well at the time. And I lived in L.A. and money. You know, so it's another year out of your life and when you're older. But I, I always felt I should have done. I would love to have done it more. I, I think probably, I think if I had to work with it, it had been... I don't... I, 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 I'm, not, I'm not being um, sort of... I don't know. I, I, I think I would have helped him, you know, get over his problems with it a bit because he was struggling with the fact that, you know, it wasn't going his way and it wasn't the sort of film. But, uh, you know, at the end of the day, he can make more of... I, I read the book and wondered where it was going, to be honest with him. But, um, uh, I'm not saying I made, I made a difference, but I think it'd still be here if I'd have done it, to be honest with him. Yeah? No, I do. I do. I do, because I wouldn't say I was a son to him, but I was... Uh, he was a father to me. And, you know, I think he was very upset I, I didn't do it. But he didn't want me to do it. We argued a bit and one thing or another before it started. So I thought, you know, be happy to do it for somebody else. So there we are. I, I'm sorry that I laughed. I, I misunderstood you. I was thinking that maybe you guys would still be shooting it if it were. <laughs> well, it, it's odd you should say that, right? Because when it's finished, he, he still wanted some shots of New York. You know, he did. Because he, he, he built a set. But... So I did some aerial stuff in New York for him actually at the end and uh, some helicopter stuff. And then took it back to him and look at it. And then at that time he still wasn't happy with the cut. And he got the cruisers back for another week of shooting and they readily returned after, after a year. Which I did with him. Yeah, it was so funny. And I enjoyed it. But then, what, three weeks, four, I don't know, soon after, I can't remember how it was. He, uh, he died. So I, he didn't look too good when I saw him. I must admit, I like looking. Yeah. But that's all, uh, you know, it's all a while ago now. It's been, it's been a while, isn't it? So I think all these films, his films are all greeted with a reservation of, by critics, aren't they? And uh, after time, their status as something special emerges. 
Um, you know, I mean, he has, uh, I, you know, I think he, may, as I say, I don't know. Um, there's a lot being said about the guy, isn't there, really? So what, what can you add that's going to make it uh, any more interesting? I don't know. But I mean, I regret his passing, and I think his unrealized Napoleon, which I'd love to have shot with him. He revered him. He said he uh, he changed the political sort of landscape of the modern world, and um, you know that's something which we still could be doing. To be honest with you, I don't know, and that would have been, I suppose, it would have capped my career as being something that is always something that uh, I I would like to have done. You know. And it would have been the masterpiece, I'm sure. Yeah. He has razor-sharp, voracious curiosity, Kubrick. That's what it's about, isn't it, really, when you're making films. You, he does um, research it to the nth degree. So, you know, he, he puts his life into four years of it. And, uh, you know, since then, I mean, we, we come in and do stuff. And uh, not since I've been working with him, and it's all been sort of knocked out production presents and make a lot up as you go along. You know, that's um, that's the way it is now. And you can still put together something decent without having to spend months like we did, I suppose, working on his schedules, you know, standard schedules a month, sometimes a year. I mean, Berlin was, uh, for me, a year and a half. So, you know, um, all that sort of grows on you a bit. But at the same time, you can move fast if you have to, and that's just the order of the day now. We don't have that time. Even the great directors, you know, have got limited schedule times and um, budgets to meet, and that's what it's about. Is really, you know, beat the clock lighting and getting it done, you know. And so that area I I now live with is not what I was brought up with. So uh, um, and that's what I'm. I was indulged pretty much um, with better finesse all these little requirements with with a guy that had pedantic attention to almost every detail. And, uh, you know, you enjoy it. Oh, it takes that much longer. It never costs any more because it was delivered really, Stanley's movie was always delivered really, basically on, on some sort of budget, which he worked within, you know, because people who worked with him didn't require paying a great deal. He always thought that we owed him money for being part of his image, you know. So it's like going back to school and getting paid, you know what I mean? Yeah, I enjoyed that part of it. I did. That schooling has helped me a great deal in, in my past, but I still like to work with best directors, whoever they are, wherever they are. So I'm hanging out still for that. We'll see what happens. I did want to thank you for shooting Standing in the Shadows of Motown. I'm actually calling you from Detroit. That's where I live. Oh, are so you? That, oh, okay. Yeah. That documentary means a lot it to a lot does, of people around does, here. Yes. I, I wasn't good with shooting that sort of stuff. It was all off, a bit off the cuff because we had these great performers, you know, and how do you do it? You know, it's... We wandered around endlessly. Very few I, I'm that proud of outside Kubrick, I suppose it's because I've done what's probably over 26 films as a DP. I, I, I still think Lonesome Dove was one of the better ones and it went on to, you know, do well and break down one or two others and I did, I, I spent quite a bit of time with Jean-Claude Van Damme doing stuff with him, Legionnaire and things. Yeah, so I'm still, and, and recently I just, did a film about Stalin in Ukraine, which is coming out. I think I think largely has been picked up finally and uh, being theatrically released uh, in February called Bitter Harvest. So watch out for that, Mike. I think it's one of the better looking films I've shot in a long time and uh, brought a lot to it. You shot it in Ukraine, as I say. Excellent. I look forward to it. Yeah, look at it. Have a look at it. Yeah, do that. Yeah. 
did I read right that you were writing a biography, an autobiography? Well, I started one, uh, now it's been a long time ago, it was in 2000, and wrote about 60% of it. It's a hell of a tale. But I started to write it because, you know, this is inventing is a hazardous business. And uh, my licensee went bankrupt, and then the Skycam guys went under. Both cases, due to some very, you know, uninformed and unsuccessful maneuvers, aside from my uh, license, you know, aside from Skycam, my licensee did some dangerous and, and, and disastrous things. And so, with both of them bankrupt, I thought briefly I might have to write for a living uh, and started the book, you know, as a uh, with my eye on a bestseller chart. And that's never a very intelligent way to go about a book. It's tough to write on demand high selling book. And your ideas about what might sell are sometimes as wrong as your ideas about what invention might sell if you're trying to invent for money. I am a long-time advocate of inventing stuff that you want, not inventing what you think other people want. Because at least if you score, you have one for yourself. You know? But if you get it wrong what other people want, you've wasted an awful lot of dough and time on something that maybe there isn't a market for. It, you know? So the reliable motive is uh, something you want for yourself. You know? and that's, that's the way to do it. So the book sits there 60% done, and I have a much better motive now for getting back to it. It was really fun to do, and I've gotten in the book the, the object invented. I'm about chronologically to launch on uh, making films, <clears throat> and the great stories, there are amazing stories from that era that would be really fun to, uh, to investigate. So I'm going to uh, get back to it one of these days, because I haven't told those stories yet. Do you consider yourself more of a cameraman first or an inventor first? If we're coming back in the country and cost, what's your occupation? My wife wasn't happy if I said inventor. And I finally figured out that, you know, inventor was regarded as kind of a nerdy thing when I grew up. It was Gyros, it was, you know, uh, Donald Duck's uncle. It was um, Doc Brown. <laughs> you know, there was a slightly, there was a taint of, of nerdiness about the whole deal. And uh, she wanted me to say cameraman, which I did for years. But I think, you know what, I'm actually better than I ever was a cameraman or director. So inventing has gone back to the forefront. And uh, I say I'm an inventor. Are all of your inventions around the camera or have you kind of branched out from that as well? I actually have two uh, projects that are, I've had a, a desire to do a consumer invention for 30 years. I've been trying to do a so-called walking machine, with a, which would be a human-powered transportation device that would fit in a, in a briefcase and weigh six or eight pounds and let you go six or eight miles an hour. And then you could, it, the specification was pretty rigorous. I started doing this when I was on The Shining because I had lots of time. And I had a lot of short ends from Stanley because he would shoot a thousand foot, a seven minute scene, but he wouldn't use the 300 foot short ends. So I would cop all the short ends and started to make study cam shots of people walking to analyze the gate because walking is so slow. And I still would desperately love to have this, but you, it has to be something that you throw down on the ground, jump on it and go. You can't have to sit down and strap it on. And, you know, you should have it with you in a, in a sack over your shoulder. Throw it down, jump on it, go six or eight miles an hour, which is the way it would feel would be a uh, version of the airport walkways on steroids. It would be fabulous. You know, each step taking you double the distance, let's say. 
And that project is still alive. So I've, I've always had an interest in consumer things. And lately, I've, I'm working on two unrelated new ones, which are giving me a lot of joy. And both of them have churned up a bunch of investor interest. So that may, they may turn into something. And I'm still doing camera stuff. As a matter of fact, the best study camera invention since the original one is is working its way along and uh, will be a revelation to study cam operators. So we're still in that game. Uh, I can't, alas, tell you the nature of that yet, but my license is based, is still active with a new licensee, Tiffin. And um, Tiffin came along after the bankruptcy of my original outfit. We've had a lot of fun. And my license with Tiffin is based on continuing patents, which we have, I would say, dozens of at this point. So pretty active. When I look at your CV, it goes all the way back to Marathon Man. And as far as I know, that was using the Steadicam. Is that correct? Yeah, Marathon Man, Rocky, and Down for Glory were all shot in, you know, back and forth to each film in 1975. Because when we demoed what the original prototype could do with a rather now famous clip called Possible Shots, <clears throat> that made early viral uh, object because five millimeter prints of that demo were sent all around the world to Kubrick and all the people that the licensee knew of. Uh, Avildsen saw it, who was about to do Rocky. Conrad Hall had been testing the prototype, shooting commercials with me, used it for a very famous shot on Bound for Glory. And Conrad Hall very boldly used it on Marathon Match, just completely raised eyebrows. That's an amazing film if you haven't seen it lately. And I'm always going to Rocky, obviously. Lots of study can film. Were you shooting stuff before the invention of the Steadicam, or did they really kind of come together at the same time? I had a production company. I was a director cameraman in Philly shooting commercials and films for Sesame Street. We did many of the early, really fun films for Sesame Street. And I had <clears throat> learned my trade in the Free Library of Philadelphia because film schools weren't on my radar in any form. There were hardly any at the time. We're talking 1970. And... Uh, I learned 1940s filmmaking, you might say, by reading 30 shelf feet of books in the Philly Library, all out of date. This turned me into a very uh, burdened character because I made a studio and a barn, and I bought a lot of used gear from a film producer in Philly that went bankrupt, a famous old guy. So I have a, I had a 800-pound dolly. I had a perambulator mic boom that you may remember from early Halloween Hollywood films, where you crank a crank in the snout of this thing shoots out 20 or 30 feet with a mic on it swiveling at the end of it but it, that object weighed two or three hundred pounds and i had gigantic old lights i had more lights than my puny 60 amps left over from my house power would even light up at once and the studio floor wasn't very level i mean there's a, you know a sort of youthful enthusiastic comedy of errors going on but the consequence was that i loved moving shots and to make the camera move with that era, think back. You had to have a dolly, a crane, or a, or a camera car. End of story. That's it. If you want the camera to move smoothly, that's the game. So I had five sections of rail. We would hump this dolly into pickup trucks, stack the rail on the back, hump it off the pickup truck, lay the rail, four straight sections and one curved. And on top of this dolly would be my 12-pound wind-up Olex. So this truly was facing a really gigantic absurdity every time I made a moving shot. They were so arbitrary, arbitrary in length and direction, arbitrary in, in uh, duration, 24 seconds, the spring line. But those limitations, you know, we made some astonishing shots. 
studio floor was so bad that somebody had to ride along on the dolly leveling the head because there are little leveling screws on it. Somebody had to ride along looking at a bubble and leveling the dolly in order for in order for my thing. You know? So did you come up with a study cam to basically solve your own problem as far as wanting to do these moving shots but not having a good way to do them? Precisely. And so therefore I wanted this badly and I started doing experiments that eventually led to this stuff in a pretty startling way. For example, I was fairly technically inclined for whatever reason. I you know, I have a good sense of Newtonian physics. I wanted a shot for a car commercial, the fruit commercials done in the state. I wanted to fly over these cars on a deserty airport kind of setting. But I wanted to fly at ground level, looking in the windows and up at the cars. And then I wanted to fly away. And commercial, we had, I spontaneously picked up some, strapped my Harry to it and flown it, hanging out of a helicopter, dangling this pole. And we got shots like that of a car dodging in and out of the surf in Florida. And they were spectacular, except they were very stable in two axes because the camera on a long pole was very stable. They were very unstable in the long axis of the pole around that axis because there was no inertia there, people. And so the second time around, Subaru commercial in Thermal Airport in California, uh, we put a crossbar up at the top with some weights, and, and it, it was a jaw dropper. Uh, I found that commercial, and I lecture on inventing, and I lecture on, on the making camera and so on all around the world, and I've now able to show some of the historical shots, and that, that shot is a killer. And uh, it suggested to me that I could put a camera on a pole with a T-bar pole, and it would be staying three axes. I might be able to walk around with it. Right? I went to a plumbing place in Concanic, Pennsylvania, and for $8.50, they screwed together plumbing, two lead weights, and bolted my camera to the front of that thing, and went down in fields and walking and so on, shooting with a, one of the very earliest video recorders <clears throat> called a... Uh, a quarter-inch recorder, a monitor in the recorder, and a separately plug-inable camera. And uh, the results were astonishing. And I put a reel together of that stuff and started taking it around the car because I had also shot from my father-in-law uh, a Ford station wagon, my Mercedes with my wife driving, and saw stuff that would be fantastic in car commercial. Unfortunately, couldn't get arrested with the big agencies that had Chevy and Ford and so on like that. Those good old boys had a way of doing car commercials that they loved. I didn't want this long-haired dude's weird invention to do, you know, to get anywhere near their, their plump, you know, car commercials. But I shot all kinds of stuff with that <clears throat> in a uh, more presentable version out of box scene that we bought up in Canal Street. And I shot a spectacular shot for ABC not wide sports, American sportsman or something like that, uh, for John Wilcox. And it was so simple. And I began to think it was valuable. So I covered it with black cloth and had stupid sound-making things inside it going whir, click, buzz, you know, as if there was something scientific happening inside it. And I made a, sh I made a shot of the jockey Robin Smith, one of the famous women jockeys who eventually married Fred Astaire, interesting of her walking out of the colors room and walking yards to the ring where they, you know, begin to put the horses through their paces in her colors, in her jockey colors. And I carried her walking through that ring and climbed up. She climbed up, got on a horse, and I circled the ring with this machine. 
except that the viewfinding was bad. I had a I had inspiration because you have to see the lens to to get a flat viewfinder, and I had a relatively crappy one at that time, sixteen millimeter camera, and I could my bad, but I had no idea whether it's any good. John Wilcock said to me, "Well, how'd you do?" I, I said, "Well, I, I think I have some good." And he said, "Fine." I never saw the and recently put in the Sport Broadcasting Hall of Fame. I had some conversation with John. He did one of the testimonials. Told me that that shot was spectacular. That it intact in the broadcast, and that Runa loved it. I wish I had done that. Then great for my morale. I was, you know, I did not particularly like. Vice, because if you picture a camera on the end of a pole, you're in the balance point between the camera and the bar, right? If you tilt up, it rises, which is annoying. You know? So that had this built-in thing. I couldn't just tilt up. I had to kind of arm up the whole thing to look up. Uh, pan it, I had to swing the whole thing. You know, it still permitted wonderful shots, but it, it wasn't something that was going to take and um, a couple of other iterations later, both of which I used, you know, I made very impressive demo reels with. But and the people in Hollywood that I took them to loved them. But Paul said you have to do it in 35 millimeter. And as is fairly well known, I looked at this thing that I had made, and you know, it was extremely klutzy. But that it would never be a commercial hit. And by that time, I had much money in it. I knew that I had to, you know, not only use it for myself, but find a way to make it a success, you know. I went into a motel and the task of reinventing it in a lightweight version that would take a 35mm camera. Total weight of 35 camera and counterweights and, and thing somebody could bear to lug around, you know. And fortunately, came out of the, a week later, the, an, you know, an idea for how to, a bit disappointed because the lens height's maximum range at, with this game was about the waist to a bit over your and I wanted it to be Florida still and de- downcast when I came away with this. <coughs> I decided to make it, try it, and I found a great machinist to build it, put it on, and it was, it was dreadful. And I realized that I had an arm, you know, the whole works as per the present study can. If, if your listeners don't know how it works, there are four things. You expand the mass of the package, so you put the battery and now lately the monitor down below. The gimbal at the center of gravity. A thing that lamps they with ships are pitching around, so that you attach the support to the gimbal, and that means your motion don't get through in the angular sense. Of course, you can't hold all this up with your arm, so you need a spring-loaded arm that floats it, preferably smoothly in all directions, and that to transfer the arm's force. And then finally, number four, the actual you need a viewfinder, and that time was either fiber optic or the very, very forms of portable monitors that exist. And so prototype was all four of those things, except it was middle shoulder joint and felt very restrictive. And when I added the one shoulder joint and when I shoot this demo, including pretty impossible shots, including running down the art museum steps and filling up chasing my then girlfriend, my wife. And uh, that's the demo that was seen by everybody. And I immediately got a deal and got all the money back that I had spent. And very long story, seven or eight months later, we had a functional prototype. I had to go out there and re-educate these guys because none of them made a few dumb things. I had to make them make it very much like the prototype arm, something else that didn't work. 
And I went uh, pushing the pressure on them because we had three movies to shoot from people who had seen the demo. And that was the launch. Raheem eventually got Best Picture. Don from Book for Glory got Best Cinematography. And Marathon Man was just a hell of a big film. Astonishing film. And in all three, this invention was revolutionary and clearly contributed a lot to the movies. An amazing film. When it comes to those early films, how much of the those were being shot with the steady cam or were they kind of more were you more of like the flourish and the 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 shining moments for those movies? All of the above. In Down for Glory, I was the great flourish of a gigantic and impossible shot coming down on a crane, stepping off, walking through a migrant camp with David Carradine and uh fill in that name for me. Forget that, just with Carradine. A, shot, a jaw-dropping shot for anybody that knew how cameras move, because no camera could move straight ahead through over ground like that without seeing the rails. <clears throat> and then in Marathon Man, a profusion of dust. And in Rocky, an even greater profusion. Just we were all over that. Show. You know, the, the steps and the, the meat locker and the running everywhere in Philly and, and and. It seems like these directors that you're working with must have. I don't want to say that they were visionary, but it seems like they really kind of were embracing the new technology and using it very, very well. Because those moments that you're talking about, especially with something like Rocky, it's like those are the moments that you think of when you think of the film. It is true that they were, I think they were not considering not considering revolution. They were simply, they were self-confident enough and had enough power to take something new and take whatever chance existed that it would and get it on the film and do it. And as the word began to spread, the bold began to come forward and use it. I was pretty astonished that everybody didn't immediately come forward, but that has to do with human nature, that the bold go ahead and do stuff, and eventually the raggedy-ass masses go, okay, I'm going to do this too. And of course, for it to be widespread, there had to be more than my lonesome self as an operator. I expected to work every day the rest of my life with this thing, because it was really fun. You know, I was launched in the feature film business in an instant. I'd never even seen Chapman Crane up in person when I was on that very first shot for Down for Glory, standing on the top of one, 30 feet in the air. That happened. Uh, and the operator sent up to help me was going, that's funny, you're shaking, but the shot is still... So a beer called me down and, you know, we got a three-take school and one of them was great. And I got in the scene myself by confusing the producer with the projectionist. I hovered in the back hiding from the producer that I put that idea. Watched hours of Wexler's great stuff and getting pretty down in the dumps because the refining was so bad I had no idea if the shot was any good. And then came one of those moments that if you're lucky, you have one of in your lifetime. And this came on, and the place was dead silent, and the shot was astonishing. And there was a silence afterward, and they leaped to their feet, roaring, yelling, clapping, yelling Haskell's name, shrieking with joy. And I sat in the back, you know, getting that adrenaline rush, because my life had just flipped then and there. Uh, along with so many of these amazing directors that you've worked with over the years, you've worked with amazing directors of photography as well. What's kind of your relationship with uh, like a Connie Hall or a Haskell Wexler as you're making these films? What, what's that, that cameraman DP relationship like? Well, I've had every variation on it 
the system that DPs frequently are interested in lighting, and the operators contribute enormous shot design, and I've had of that. And in the in in those instances, you often end up pretty much doing the designing of the shot yourself, as well as the um, Haskell and Conrad strong DPs, and they had very good and I extraordinarily valid ideas about how shots should be. You know, I sensibly listened to them and tried to do what they said and offered possibility. I learned time ago that one of the hazards is is dealing with large egos, and you really can't as a subordinate character like an operator to a you can't tell them what to do, and it's rather foolish to suggest that you have a better idea than they have. And I teach operators in study cam workshops, so seminars for young filmmakers. I teach them, you know, a more sensible way to go about that because you don't tell actors what to do. You tell them what your what your problem is and let them help solve it. You know, don't say stand over here. Say I don't have enough room to get by. I don't know how to do this. And then shut up and let them go. Well, how about if I stand over here? If you have an idea for it, don't say why don't you do this. You know, because that says several things that their plan sucks and yours is better. What I learned to do and teach people to do is the best way you can show a way of doing something is is by discovery. Usually in an era when they're watching from Video Village, you know, so do what you what you what your idea is in between takes, and you 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 go, hey, look at this, this is cool, and does not put the onus on their idea in the first place. It's a discovery. And very often they go, yeah, that is that, you know. So there is there is a hierarchical psychology at work that, of course, I had to learn as well as any of the other aspects of that kind of shooting. I learned to navigate that. And I was a wild card. I was called the stranger on the Bound for Glory set because swooped in and beat, beat all the stuntmen at their techie game. I was the stranger. So the outsider with this crazy machine, but, you know, still subordinate to all the, the Byzantine politicking and that goes on on the movie set, more depending on the set. I wasn't in the union, but nobody else had this thing. So I got a free play. You know, it was it was tricky, but very interesting. What was your relationship like with John Alcott on The Shining? It was uh, very good, but John was really involved. Stanley's ideas and, and accomplishing the lighting. And to an extent, and I were, were extraordinarily affable and very friendly. You know, he's a kind of shy guy, was a kind of shy fellow, and did, just wanted to do what he had to do. And I presented him with a new problem, which is what you can do anywhere with a camera and the has to follow. And they generally were lighting those sets with practicals and on dimmers because that's the way Stanley liked to do it. And the practicals were all halogen bulbs that could be cranked way up or down. Looked very flavorful color temperature-wise as they went up. And uh, they would pre-light and test all the lighting in every set and actually process the film and look at it and adjust the dimmers up and down until they liked what they saw. But now suddenly here's this camera going everywhere, you know, in every direction. And John took up the burden of plotting and running the dimmer board so that every time, whatever direction I looked, the lights ahead of me were up hot. And so everything was slightly in backlight and the lights behind me, so I didn't cast shadows. So they were rotating and cranking up the light in the direction that I looked, which, of course, since I could only see in the direction I looked, you could never tell they were doing it. And in a few instances, John would creep up behind me with a big square card and cut a square 
shadow where I was working, which did not look like a bloke with a you know floating sewing machine, which otherwise it would. So John had his hands full dealing over all this, but Christ, he got great stuff. I was very, very sorry to hear that he had expired way too young. It almost sounds like an orchestra as far as him changing these dimmers as you're moving around through the space. That pioneered that technique, which is universe. Scarraro was a master of it and had great guys on the dimmer boards and who, you know, quickly get the drill and know what to do. From what I've read, you and Stanley had quite a few conversations about the crosshairs of the camera. He was composing, as he often did in films, in a kind of very Palladian manner in which everything was centered. And if you're advancing down hallways, that's a very effective thing to do. It's, it was against all the compositional uh, tricks that I had and, and lore and so on. And I had to just master my eye to not make interesting composition because he wanted that travel, view, which required a very three-dimensional clock, just be bore-sighted down hallways. And if he liked the actors in the center of the train, and of course, videos that he was watching, there was a and we would have arguments afterward. He wanted the crosshairs on shelves, let's say. On a brilliant take, we would argue for a few minutes about whether it mattered, whether the crosshairs. I said, Stanley, for Christ's sake, going to print the crosshairs. So nobody in the audience is going to be aware that the crosshair might be on her the wrong knot. It was an, it was, um, an affable thing. I, I loved working for the guy. I loved the guy. I thought he was great. He and I got along really well. Um, He's regarded as fierce and arbitrary and, and uh, very, very particular. But for me, shooting 30 or 40 or even 50 takes of something was like a great gift because that was my master class. Uh, and it was not that arduous, even though the rig with a silent camera weighed about 70 pounds. I was in great shape. And secondly, you would do a three-minute take, and then you'd have a three-minute playback, and then you'd have a three-minute argument. So it wasn't very tiring. I worked one third of the time. I had, I had one scene where I had to slowly walk up, up looking back down at Shelly coming up slowly behind me, right? And we shot that 37 times, which is the equivalent of being the Empire State Building with a steady cam on. And it was all done in one day. But it was a piece of cake. You know, you got a long rest, really, effectively, between each shot. I know that the shoot went very long, and at one point you were you would leave the shoot and fly back to the States and then kind of come back and, and, and do one, what was it, one week on, one week off? Yeah, that was a kind of a unique deal. I had to do sets, and Stanley's producer, Jan Harlan, we would never go beyond that. Jan was his brother-in-law as well, and uh, he made a very harsh deal for the rate for the first six months, and I said, fine, but if it goes beyond that, then we go to my deal, and that's my normal rate and per diem and the Concord back and forth weekly and so on, because I had to shoot Rocky too. <clears throat> so I had to train somebody to cover me for that. And Stanley, uh, rather, Rian said, oh, don't worry, God, that will never happen. Uh, we're going six months. Uh, Stanley is going to finish this in six months. And we had little carts. You know, we had, The intent was to shoot two or three shots a day and trundle to the next stage. Everything would be lit and ready to go the whole time. All the sets ready, lit, ready to shoot. But in fact, it didn't work that way. Stanley liked small crews and taking his time, having lots of takes. And uh, so we did approximately one shot a day. So at the end of the six months, I went in with the signed deal memo. I said, okay, now we're on my deal. So notoriously, I did, I don't know, 26 Concord flights back and forth. 
it was a stunner. And it was fine. They they shot the non study camp shots on the week off, such as 148 takes of Scatman doing his bit, seven minutes. <clears throat> and they shot my stuff on the week when I was there and went six more months. When you were done with The Shining, what did you think of the final film? I liked it a lot. I uh, I was at the first screening in New York, uh, which concluded with a hospital scene that was immediately cut out of the film. And the immediate reviews from the press for that screening were very, very bad. And they very much upset Stanley, who cut the last scene out. I thought it, you know, like most of his films, it was very deliberate. But the fact that it's become a cult classic and that it still interests kids today speaks a lot about how well done that was. You know, it's it's almost unique in the style and manner, and uh, it still exerts a tremendous fascination for people. And I find myself, if a, you know, if it's on television, almost unable to look away from it even now. I just went to the 35, 35th anniversary crew reunion and back in what's left of the studio in Boramwood, which was really fun. And about 40 of the crew made it back there after all this time. And they had a 35 mil print sent over by Warners and played it in a local theater. And it was extremely good fun to see a print again after all this time because I've only ever seen it on video since we were back in the theater. Did you ever see Room 237? I did. I, I Sorry, I didn't see it, but I read a lot about it. It seemed a very silly exercise to me. I'm, I'm quite certain that Stanley had no, no ideas like that and would have zero interest in any of them. What do you remember that final scene, that hospital scene? It was the best work I had ever done to date. It was an astonishing scene. It was probably not ultimately necessary or useful for the film, but it was so beautifully executed. And it was, you know, uh, Scott, no, not Scott, man. I think he had, it was some, it was uh, Tony Burton or somebody visiting Shelley and Danny in her hospital room. And it was a little bit of a, a kind of a wrap up and so on. And the film was actually better. And then it cut to the cruising in on the shot with Jack. And I think it, it's arguable that uh, you bet it was better going from his frozen self to that dolly in on that picture. Stand, let Shelley just disappear into the, your imagination you know, rather than see her frail and pale in a hospital bed. <clears throat> I'd love to see that scene again. And in fact, we had a promise from the organizers of the reunion that the one and only print that had that scene would have been flown to England and we would see it. But I, I think... Stanley didn't want it in there, and I think Jan in the end prevailed and said, no, we don't want to show something that Stanley didn't want. So when the print showed up, it did not have that scene. And unfortunately, we've been told it did, so various intros to the picture got the audience interested to see it. But uh, remains one of those great classic missing things. You know, someday it'll turn up on YouTube. I can't say that anybody out there who has access to it that I would discourage you from pirating it on YouTube. I think we'd all love to see it. Includes you, too, my. All right. If I ever get my hands on it. And I'm curious, what are you up to these days? I stopped shooting in 04. I love study camp shooting, and I still do it a lot for teaching workshops. <clears throat> but I don't know. I had it after 100 films, I had enough. I, I was tired of riding in vans, you know, being told what to eat and all the peripherals that go along with it. So, And I have lots of other stuff to do. So I'm... Uh, working on these two consumer inventions, and they appear to be acquiring a lot of head, head uh, a lot of steam. One of them is a trivial thing, and it's but it's gorgeous. I love it. It's a wonderfully super light arm for your iPad to float it over your bed or wherever, or reading in bed or you know uh, 
getting just getting a better eye line on it, but it's super light and it's like a little dynamic suspension bridge. So that's one thing. And the other thing is anything but trivial. It's a replacement for the walker and the wheelchair. It's a so-called elevating walker chair. And that has created a something of a sensation of a talk that I gave and a lot of billionaires have come forward to help her invest and so on. So we have the, the dough to make prototypes on that thing. That'll be fun. That'll be good. And I'm I'm still lecturing all around. I I lecture on the moving camera at the Society of Cinematographers and the Cinematography Festival in Poland and uh, at Pixar, I lecture on inventing at Apple and various places. And uh, I, I like that. I mean, you can tell I'm a blabbermouth. I love to I love to chatter away about stuff. And someday I'll get back to the book. I hope that one of these days I can have you back to chatter again because this has been fantastic. Well, good. I enjoyed it. back and we were talking about The Shining. Now, over the years, the film has become somewhat, I don't know, notorious, I suppose, for the number of interpretations of it. I initially ran into these via Rob Ager's Collative Learning web series, where I was introduced to some of the ideas of The Shining as a metaphor for things like Native American genocide, the Holocaust, uh, the confession of Stanley Kubrick to faking the moon landing, these kind of things. And then a few years after that, uh, the documentary, documentary, the film Room Two Three Seven came out, and that kind of really lit a fire under people to talk about. I think a couple of things. One was The Shining, and one was interpretations of movies. And it was interesting for me to kind of sit on the sidelines from that because, much like you guys, you know, I, I've been a film fan for a long time. I tend to like close readings of films and looking at possibly different interpretations of it. But a lot of stuff in room 237 almost seemed like a bridge too far. Now, I'm really curious, what were your guys' takes? Because I assume that both of you have seen 237. Yes. I really like 237. In fact, I loved that movie. And I I loved it for a bunch of reasons. One, because I thought it was just wonderfully creative in the way that it reused existing footage, not just from The Shining, but from other movies. And it was kind of an experimental documentary uh, on that level. And then I just, it had this kind of shining porn, you know, (laughs) feel to it in that you were just literally slowing down shots as much as you could and looking in, again, in the the corners and seeing interesting things. And I could just, I could have watched four more hours of it, honestly, because it, it, it it opened up that, that world uh, a little wider for me. I never took any of the interpretation seriously. And I never thought we, the filmmaker or filmmakers intended for us to take them seriously. I always thought that it was as much a documentary about how people interpret art as it was specifically about 
what's actually going on in The Shining. And I, but I have since had many people come, especially after I recommended that film, come up to me angry because they're like, this is complete, this is trash. It's, it's ludicrous. And because they're, you know, they're taking it at face value. I sort of struggled with the film. Um, and maybe again, it was about my own, um, first of all, I was very, you know, again, it was so hype critically and everybody was telling me, you know, how great it was. And so I, I guess to me, I wish that, because I felt like like after 10 minutes, I got the idea that it was a film really about self-delusion and obsessive thinking and that these were not particularly the most serious, interesting interpretations of the film. They were like crazy interpretations of the film. And it was fascinating to sort of watch that for a while, but I kind of felt like I got it. And I, I wish that it either had gone much deeper into why people need to read this stuff into it, like the psychology behind that. Or I wish it had gone into other theories that didn't seem quite as on the surface ludicrous very quickly. You know, I'm in the moon landing thing or whatever. You just, you know, it's to me, it felt caught between worlds. And I know I'm in the minority here. And I know most people love the movie. So I'm, I'm sure, you know, people can send, send hate mail care of. But, <laughs> but for me, I just felt like I, I wanted it to go one way or the other. I wanted to really get into the craziness of these people in a, in a deeper way and understand like what was underneath it. Like no more about them or something. Or I was fast, I would still be fascinated to see a film of more less less completely bizarre interpretations, things that felt felt more grounded in 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 something real in the film itself, rather than than again. I think I, feel, I think in many ways it was a film about about obsessive thinking and self delusion more than it was a film about The Shining, really. Yeah, I had a friend of mine who said that it was a documentary about people with too much time on their hands. And I guess what made me sad about that is I feel like that's the way people look at a lot of film scholarship or thought or whatever is, you know, I think a lot of people think thinking seriously about movies is stupid. Uh, I certainly run into people who said that to me a lot in my life. And they're movies. Who cares what they mean? So I, I, I sort of was like, yeah, and this reinforces that a little bit. And part of me would love, I, I don't know, I just would hope, I would love to see somebody, like I remember how much I did love some of the books around 2001 that came out, like uh, the making of 2001, you know, where, where there were some really intelligent theories put forth about what that film was about and what it really meant and what, and, and so for me as a viewer expanded that. And, and, and I think I went in perhaps unfairly to two thirty to two thirty seven, hoping for that experience and then having this other experience and not sort of enjoying it because I was in the wrong place for it. But, you know, cause I do think the films, any, you know, any of Kubrick films, any great films are do lend themselves to all sorts of interpretation. And that the great thing about almost any art is that you're finding this common ground between the viewer and the creator. And often there are new things being brought to it. Um, and that's, I think, anything, whether it's a painting or a novel or a piece of music, uh, you know, you're having a different experience taking it in than the person who created it did. But I, I think it's such an interesting movie and there's so many ways to look at it that that I would love to see a film made that are much more serious theories about that film. Because uh, I, I know I've learned something from that. I know. I'm, I'm looking around my bookshelves and I'm seeing all these books on film theory and film interpretations and all these kind of things and different close readings of different films. And I'm just like, now, if somebody else were to come down here, it would look like I was a 
you know, conspiracy nut. You know, it, it feels like it kind of tainted what I hold dear as far as the ability to look at a film and get more than one interpretation out of it. And it feels like, you know, you could look at my, my bookshelf and be like, oh, this guy has 50 copies of Rush to Judgment on his shelves. You know, it's like, no, there's a little bit more to it. So I'm definitely ambivalent about the film. There's an interview coming up in a little bit here with Rodney Ash, and I have to say that after talking to him, I gained a little bit more appreciation about the film, but I am still definitely of two minds when it comes to what does this say and does it kind of sully the things that I hold so dear as far as being able to pull apart a film. I mean, that's really what this whole program, what the projection booth is all about is to to try to look deeper than what's on the surface. You know, if it, if it was just surface, then we would all be Chris Farley. Like, do you remember that one time when Jack had that axe? That was cool. You know, it's, it's, we have to talk a little bit deeper than that, though. It feels like there's a line and it feels like all the people involved in 237 kind of crossed that but line. I don't, I don't think everyone did. And I think there were things, whether they were intended or not that were observed that uh, are latent in the film. I mean, I think the Holocaust evil or the big capital E in the 20th century, I'm sure is a part of it. And it was, even if it was unconsciously so part of Kubrick's intention, I think the elevator doors opening and all that blood coming out is a 20th century image. And so I, I, I maybe, I, I don't know. And maybe, you know, I saw the film before there was any hype about it, two, three, seven. So maybe it was, I, I wasn't burdened with all of that. But, you know, also, I, th- I thought it was nice to see a movie that was examining another movie on levels that aren't normally discussed. And it feels like it feels to me like film criticism has gotten increasingly shallow in the last 10 years, maybe because maybe because it's become less important um, to the public at large. But it's that that sort of in-depth analysis is I don't know, I, I, I don't. It's, I certainly don't read it in the mainstream at all. It's that's gone. What kills me is this whole phenomenon of fan theories, quote unquote, where people try to be like, oh, well, all of the Disney movies are related because this, 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 and this. And it's like, you know, let's make a 10 minute video on YouTube and slap it up there and we'll get a thousand hits. And eventually, you know, somebody will pick us up and all of a sudden it's like, oh, well, yeah, Elsa's parents, they look totally like the parents from Tarzan. This is crazy, you know? <laughs> And that kind of stuff just drives me nuts. Whereas, you know, there is a lot more to it than just this kind of like armchair criticism kind of stuff. And I will admit that I didn't think that everybody in 237 was crazy. There are are people, though, that I did definitely find that way, especially when people are talking about subliminal images in the film. And I'm just like, yeah, I don't see it at all. What are you talking about? Hold on just a moment. Because I remember that time, and I would not – I don't think that any of the things that were specifically mentioned were intentionally placed there by Stanley Kubrick. But I would not be the least bit surprised if Kubrick was examining subliminal imagery. And at that time, that was that – was, I remember that was very current, and I, I, I wouldn't put it past him to have done that. Now, am I sounding like a conspiracy theorist? Look, I mean, Kubrick was such a—I mean, again, he was such a jokester and a playful guy in a, in a way in terms of film that I actually think there's all sorts of possibilities that things really were meant to have other meanings and were put—you know—that he might have picked something to put in the background of a shot. I, I guess what what is was hard is is the investing of that with this 
deep seriousness of overall it, it was just where it started to get silly to me with with most of it and, and I, you know that's where i struggled with it i don't doubt that he could have put a poster up on the wall as a way of an inside joke or the way you know we were we were emailing before about like you know the fact that in in dr strange love the the code that saves the world is crm114 and then in clockwork orange you know, um, the, the medicine, in quote, given to Malcolm McDowell is serum 114. And, you know, that's an inside joke and it's a playful thing. And it's I, I don't doubt that he might have done stuff with what's on a wall or what's in the back. It, it, it gets, it's, it's it's when people make that. And that's the point of why he was making this movie. And that's as opposed to, oh, there's an interesting little detail that might that we're I guess in that film, each each person's theory was as if that was the only thing the movie was about, as opposed to, well, of course, in the in, uh, make course of making a film that's so full of themes and ideas and a great filmmaker would play with, you know, visual jokes and puns. And there are all sorts of possibilities that there are echoes of everything, you know, and uh, probably every one of the ideas in 237 could be, could be related to something in the movie. It was just the, I have got the truth and nobody else does. And this is what the truth is. Yeah. <laughs> it felt like a pointed comment, but one that I don't actually agree with on the nature of criticism or, or, or critical thinking. Um, and I kind of felt like, yeah, I mean, there are people who take it to that extreme degree, but that I think it's important. We not reduce critical thinking to that, that that's what we think it is. Um, and again, that's my own take on it. Be it as it, it is. Let me just put this out here. Uh, the what prompted us talking about that disarm code um, from Doctor Strangelove was that in the audio commentary for The Shining, one of the commentators says, "Oh yeah, well two three seven. They changed it because the hotel had room two one seven and da 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 da. You know, kind of the the urban legend about the the movie." There wasn't a room 237. And then he said, oh, and it was a reference to the disarm code in Dr. Strangelove. And it's like, well, no, it, it wasn't. And then I went and I dug a little bit further. And this is the same guy. And this, the, the Centipede book about the making of The Shining is a fantastic book. Great, great essays. There's some really wonderful things in there. Some of it kind of falls into this room 237 territory. Others of it are really wonderful, valid criticism, and there's some really great examinations of themes and these kind of things. There's terrific interviews with so many of the people that were involved with the film. But I almost put the book down after reading the first essay in there and the author who ends up being the same person who's on this audio commentary with uh, with garrett brown john baxter he's he kind of offhandedly says oh yeah and jack nicholson had just directed its first film going south and i'm just like wait a second did you never see his first film you know <laughs> it's like did you not know that that was not his first film did you see drive he said you know come on just do a little bit more research and then I'm listening to that audio commentary again yesterday, and sure enough, he's like, blah, 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 and Jack Nicholson, who had just directed his, his first film, I'm like, oh my god, you just keep repeating yourself <laughs> when it comes to this stuff. So I don't necessarily mind if you're going to look at things and examine things, but at least get your facts straight, dude. <laughs> Fair enough. I'm curious about you guys, though. Here I am talking to to two directors. How freaking sneaky are you guys? Are you always trying to look for, like... This is going to be, you know, a movie about people trapped in a cube, but it's actually about, you know, the price of oil in Saudi Arabia. You found me at. Is that what you know? I thought <laughs> that's what you were making that film about. Keith, you always 
have Christmas in your films. We've already talked about that. So what's going on with that one? <laughs> it's a lifelong plot. When I was four years old, I decided to make films. About... No, I mean, part of the funny thing is that when you make movies, at least my experience is when you make movies, there are certain things that come up over and over again. A, it can be just coincidence. You know, I mean, people are always telling me, well, you make films that have this theme and this, this. And it's like, yes. And if I'd gotten financing for this movie and this movie and hadn't gotten it for that movie, you'd be saying, well, you make films about this and this and this. You know, I mean, what one does in a career is so random sometimes or so it could have gone so many different ways. Uh, so it's easy for people to look at careers and go like, oh, well, clearly you're obsessed with this idea. It's like, well, those are the movies I got a chance to make of the things that I wanted to do. I also think that a lot of us are people, I don't mean us just film directors, but creative people in any form, you're drawn to certain thematic ideas or situations, or but you're not conscious of it. I mean, I, I, I seem to have made, you know, I've made, I made five features as a director and one as a writer producer, and they uh, almost all, if not all, are about people who, at least in part, bad things happen with because they're trying to do good things. Uh, but that's not a theme I go out looking for stories. Of, oh, I want to tell yet another story about somebody who tries to make the world better, but it backfires. And I just seem to get drawn to those stories. And it's not something I'm even conscious aware of, uh, aware, consciously aware of, sometimes until I'm well into the process of working on it. So, and again, I Vicento, I'd be curious to hear your take on this. But uh, yes, there are themes that I think run through filmmakers or any artist's work, but I don't know how often they're conscious and how often they're just parts of who you are. So you tend to make films about certain things in the world that you're interested in or moments or kinds of situations or kinds of emotions, um, which is why I think criticism can be interesting because I've read stuff about my own work where I've gone, damn, that person's right. And I, you know, but <laughs> it's not like I could, I, I would have sat down ahead of time and said, yes, uh, all of my films have this theme, but sure. They, they sometimes do because I'm the same person. My theme is I, I, I can't get enough money for my movies. So I keep making movies about people being stuck in one or two sets. But that's honestly the case. I just Hunter was originally going to be like the entire like state and all of these hauntings going on everywhere. But you're like, yeah, I got to bring it back. It's, it's going to be a house. It's going to be a house. That's how it is. And it, and I, it really sucks because I, I, I would like to do something different. But that's just how it is. So, yeah, no, I, I mean, I'm sure everyone's everyone's different. And uh, and we you know, there was a wonderful exercise, the best ex film school exercise I ever participated in was um, when I was at the Canadian Film Center, which is like a Canadian equivalent of the American Film Institute. There were 10 directors in the program. We were all given the same script, same crew, same actor or actors. And so the only variable was the director. And we were not permitted to speak to each other. And what resulted were 10 entirely different films. So there's just by by nature of who you are, you filter things in a certain way. And I'm sure 90 percent of it is unconscious. But I, I really think that's what it is. And I, so if you look at Alfred Hitchcock's stuff and there's I think there there obviously are other factors. Probably a lot of them are economic factors, like in the case of somebody like Alfred Hitchcock, if he had a burning desire to do, you know, a, a comedy like Jamaica Inn. Um, which is a huge failure, you know, he probably decided he never wanted to do that again. And, uh, and so consequently, he, he tended to make thrillers. But that probably had a lot more to do with what just interested him. But yeah, I think it's mostly just who you are as a human being. It was, it was really fascinating to see 
uh, it was actually very, it, it gave a lot of credence to the auteur theory because you really saw how the person who was deciding the shots and talking to the actors had enormous influence on how the material comes across. And um, yeah, it's, it, so I think it's, it's just like when somebody picks up a pen and does a drawing, they just filters, whether it's a good drawing or bad drawing or whatever it is, it, it's always filtered through that human being. And, and it, they, human beings don't tend to change all that much. <laughs> And, and, and I think probably there are differences in this, but I suspect most filmmakers, not, not all, I'm sure there's some who really do work um, brain first. But I know that like, if I'm putting together the shots of a scene in my head and kind of building how it's going to look, that's a visceral thing first. And then later on, I might be teaching a class somewhere or showing the film to somebody and they'll say, oh, doesn't that shot represent so-and-so? And, and they may even be right. But I wasn't thinking that. I wasn't thinking I want a shot that represents the the degradation of mankind in the you know. I was thinking I feel like the camera should be low and kind of looking up over the bed here. And so I think we often do things. I think artists in general often do things that that come from an instinct that that may be expressing an idea, but that doesn't mean you are always conscious of what that thematic thing was. And I'm sure some people are, but I feel like most of the people I've been close to, again in every art. When you talk to them, they go, yeah, looking back, I see that I made a statement about X, but I wasn't necessarily, you know, getting up in that morning saying, oh, I'm going to paint this painting, this abstract expressionist painting, but that's really about race relations. I mean, yeah, it's like, I think that's, I think that's the exception, not the rule. And in the case of Stanley Kubrick, he probably more than just about any other filmmaker, every one of his films is so singularly his. I mean, you just, you couldn't mistake it. For anyone else's film, any any movie that he made, it's instantly recognizable. And there's just it's it's part of his appeal, I'm sure. It's just you when you watch one of his movies, you are absolutely tapped directly into his brain and looking at the world through his eyes. And yet what's so fascinating about him is is because people do think of him as a control freak in the way that Hitchcock was that there was a certain amount of improvisation with his films as well. I mean, Singing in the Rain was not an initial concept of Clockwork Orange. It's something that happened in the rehearsal process. It was something that Malcolm McDowell improvised and that Kubrick went, oh, my God, that's great. Let's put that in. So there was room to be this kind of incredible genius who, you know, crafted these films so carefully. And yet Kubrick talked about what he called the crucial rehearsal period and how much would come out of that and how much actors or others would do things that he would then incorporate into the film or what Vincenzo was talking about before with, with the documentary of seeing him come up with the idea of, hey, what if we put the camera here? You know, is that even the most controlling of filmmakers still was alive to it? Maybe part of why he was so great is that he had this genius structuralism in his brain, but he still had the the openness to see something in front of him that was alive and fascinating and, and interesting that he could then incorporate in instead of just being everything predetermined and no room for, for new ideas to, to come out. I mean, here's Johnny was legendarily an improvised line that happened on some take down, you know, that, that a lot of those moments were not all set up ahead of time. And yet people think of filmmakers like Hitchcock or Kubrick and they think, oh, everything was just locked in. And I think if that was the case, they'd have made much poorer films. Yeah, it's interesting to, to, to look at the history of the adaptation of The Shining and to go back to the original, the, the treatment even. And the, their treatment for The Shining, I found to be very fascinating because I've never read a treatment which is just basically like a couple 
lines on a page. Like I think there's one page that is filled up. It is a page and a half of stuff, but otherwise it's pretty much just kind of singular actions or moments in what they are perceiving this film to be just kind of strung together. And it was, it was really neat to read. You know, there's the, of course, when Halloran is coming back to the hotel, you just get those little, like Halloran tries to get the, you know, the snow cat, you know, these kind of things. But of course, at that point it was still room two seventeen. So it's like, okay, you know, no big uh, moon landing conspiracy uh, going on yet. Anyway, Uh, (laughs) God, what really got me was that at the end, uh, Jack ends up dying and Halloran ends up picking up the axe and he goes after Danny and Wendy. So it's just really this idea of the evil of the Overlook being able to possess these different people. So a totally different interpretation at the end of it with one of their very first times that they're sitting down and writing out what the story could be and the way that these things change things change in the editing things changed in the creation things changed on set and you know i think that that there is the idea of the the genius fallacy as far as was stanley kubrick always on top of his game you know i always lend a lot of credence to to him to alfred hitchcock it's like you know i always say like i think even the mistakes are on purpose but i think that that's giving a little bit too much credit and that really kind of comes under the spotlight when i look at something like room 237 though i do have to say that i enjoy some of these more outrageous kind of takes on things i love rob ager's uh, series on Kubrick. I mean, he does this whole thing about the photograph of Jack at the end and who some of these other people in the photograph might be. And he kind of breaks everything down and talks about the way that America changed from the gold standard into the, into the silver certificates. And it's a, it's an amazing, basically like mini documentary that he's got about this stuff. Is it BS? It might be, but I sure do enjoy watching it. And that's one of the things that I think that great f- art and great film offers us is all of these different interpretations. Are they bullshit? Maybe. Are some of them right? Yeah, sure. I mean, I'll buy into some interpretations of things where I'm like, oh, well, if you really, if you think about this in this other way, it puts things in a new perspective. And I think that's what I appreciate the most at the end of the day. Sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm going off tangent a little bit, but... Um or going off on a tangent a little bit, but uh, I read that outline as well, which was really interesting. Um, and I, it, it struck me that in adapting The Shining, it must have been terrifying, or certainly if I were doing it, I would have been terrified that it's just too linear. You know, especially if you're playing Jack as being kind of crazy from the get-go, you just know what's going to happen. And I, I thought when I was reading the treatment they probably felt compelled to kill Jack and have Hallrun take over simply because just instinctively as a storyteller, you would feel like we got to have a twist. (laughs) We can't just have Jack set him up as going crazy, have him go crazy and that's it. (laughs) And, and, uh, and I, and I, I, I wondered if that was also possibly part of the reason that the film was attacked critically when it came out, because it really doesn't, on its surface present anything terribly new as a horror movie and it's as a story it's not a particularly compelling story the themes are powerful just as keith you pointed out so well but as a story it is there's nothing there's nothing surprising you you know what's going to happen and 
maybe you don't know some of the finer details at the end. And so I've, I've often wondered if, if that was, if that isn't ironically part of the power of the movie because it's so singular and driving that there's sort of an innate and horror invariably benefits from simplicity. If there isn't sort of an innate strength in the fact that there are no twists, that is just this single point straight line that we follow in with horrible inevitability to the end. Well, I think it underlines. Yeah. Again, I, I think with Kubrick, it was in this case, yeah, more about, it goes back to the idea of it being more about theme than about twists even than about, you know, I think he's, it's all about ideas with him with so many of his movies, whether, whether they're, whether they're twisty or straight lines. I just feel like at the end of the day that he was mostly interested in getting you to think about ideas and I think at some point, yeah, all the twists they could have put in would have probably gotten in the way of that. And so that they, you're right. It's an absolutely, it's a very simple straight line story. I mean, there's really, it's an interesting concept that I never thought about, but there's nothing that surprising that happens in it. And I have a feeling that that's probably, yeah, quite, I would guess quite intentional because it's like, that's in a way not the point. The point is really in spite of the archetypal nature of the story, like what can you reveal by dealing with those archetypes instead of like trying to be clever and trump the archetype? Well, I think that takes us back to kind of the beginning of the, the discussion when we were talking about Jack Nicholson. And is it shorthand that it's Jack Nicholson as Jack Torrance, you know, the complaint of King that this guy's already off the rails when we start this? Is that, you know, a, a fair thing you know, or is it, it doesn't make it simpler for us to follow that straight line story or should we have muddied the waters and made it a little bit more complicated? Should we have put a Steven Weber into that role? So let's talk about that after the break. First, I'm going to play a couple of interviews. We're going to hear from Rodney Asher, the director of room 237 and Rob Ager, the master of ceremonies of collative learning. This is uh, Rodney Asher. I'm a filmmaker. Most relevant for this discussion is probably uh, Room 237. Before we get into that, I want to know how you kind of got into the business. I was reading that you were a storyboard artist for a while. In high school, I think my ambition was to be a comic book artist. And somewhere along the lines, I realized that A, I probably wasn't uh, good enough. Um, but B, I anticipated that would be kind of lonely work. And the notion of working on a film set seemed like a whole lot more fun, though, of course, you know, I wound up spending most of my time in front of a computer, so uh, jokes on me. But yeah, I mean, I went to, uh, you know, I was a film major, you know, when I went to college and, you know, jumped pretty quickly into working on, you know, lots of um, TV commercials and some low budget, uh, you know, films shot in Miami while also, you know, working with friends on, you know, sort of micro budgeted, you know, punk rock music videos and very strange uh, short films. And, you know, the kind of work I enjoyed the most, you know, on commercials and stuff was, you know, storyboard illustration because, you know, I could sit with the directors and help them plan out sequences, you know, and I did that for countless commercials and, I don't know, three or four movies maybe, including a, uh, like a kickboxing revenge story and a, um, a substitute where mercenaries, um, Defended a uh, high school from drug from militant drug dealers. Tom Berenger, uh, substitute. Tom Berenger, absolutely. I notice a real affinity towards more of like the 
experimental type of filmmaking when it comes to the work that I've seen of yours. Is that a pretty fair assessment? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, a lot of, you know, 237 or the S from Hell, in some ways they've been compared to like video essays or mashups, but, you know, I'm probably much more influenced by like the cut-up work of, you know, people like um, Bruce Conner or Craig Baldwin, you know, than I am of some of the other stuff. I, okay, good. I was going to say I saw a real kind of Craig Baldwin, Bruce Conner type thing, but I didn't want to be presumptuous. Oh no, I, I'm 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 happy that you're you're able to see it. I don't know that those guys get talked about enough these days, especially since you know so much of what we see, you know, looks like uh, remixes now. Right. Well, and especially since the term found footage has kind of got co-opted for the wrong reason. Oh my God, that is my number one pet peeve. You know, not, not nothing against those movies, but I hate how that word has been um, redefined in a way. I mean, I remember, um, you know, the summer when everybody was talking about uh, the Blair Witch Project and I would overhear one person after another describing the conceit and saying, and then they found the camera, you know, and that found footage comes from some off-screen person finding the camera is so comically literal. Oh yeah, that kills me, but I don't know, at a certain point, you know, words are going to, words are going to mean what they want to mean. S from hell. And then, um, in room two, three, seven, just that use of collage, the use of montage, and especially kind of using pre-existing work to tell another story was just so beautifully done. Well, thanks. I, I really appreciate that. Before we do room 237, when it comes to S from hell, how did you manage to find the people that you were talking to on that? And are those all real people or are those actors? Oh, no, they're all real people. You know, that, that that's a few years back, you know, and every year more and more people post more freely on the internet. So it's an easier and easier way to find folks. You know, I kind of stumbled across the first guy, John, um, who's the first person who we see in the movie, the one who talks about like the way the letter, the, the logo kind of slowly forms itself. Years before I made the film, I was researching a documentary that I never quite finished, so it turned into a couple of shorts, you know, going well over 10, 15 years now about, you know, sort of um, collectors. And some straight path led me to his essay about, um, about the S from Hell, and it really struck a chord with me that um, you know, it was a sort of nostalgia in a way that I reconnected, you know, to memories, you know, from the earliest childhood, like three or four, you know, I was sitting on a, um, sitting in my grandparents' house, you know, watching hours of Saturday morning TV and being confused by some of the interstitials and not having the language to describe that kind of, eerie seasick feeling when like something alien and vaguely threatening, you know, would appear on the TV. And when this guy was writing about his response to that logo, it was time travel. And, you know, there's certainly a little bit of hyperbole in the movie, but, you know, that connected me to a genuine feeling. I don't know, a few years after discovering it the first time, I retraced my steps and dug up his essay and, you know, contacted him and did a little interview in that time between the two, I was able to find a few more folks. There's actually a message board, uh, the Closing Logos group, um, where people talk about all of their favorite, you know, logos 
of yore, but I mean, it's especially set up with one of the criteria being uh, scare factor. And the S from Hell ranks very high on there, but there are others like the Paramount Closet Killer and um, the Neon Mickey or the Viacom Via Doom. I think there's three people in that movie. I mean, it's been a little while since I thought about it. And you know, I found one off of there and another who had maybe posted something on YouTube. I know there was one guy who was my great white whale uh, who I wasn't able to contact who had the most amazing story of the logo coming to him at night, you know, when he re- when he revisited his childhood home and causing a car crash outside of his window. But that one was not to be. So tell me about the genesis of Room 237, because this almost sounds like a similar kind of gathering of people with stories kind of idea. On the one hand, it was the success of the S from Hell, which, you know, it didn't make any money, but it played a couple of festivals. It you know, got into Sundance and things, which was a real shot in the arm, you know, for me. Previously, I had directed a few commercials and music videos, um, done you know, some a lot of freelance editing and motion graphics. I think I finished the S from Hell, or soon after I was, you know, I began teaching and I wasn't doing a lot of filmmaking. But the S from Hell, you know, by my standards, took off pretty well and kind of gave me the initiative to try to do something more ambitious. And then a friend of mine, uh, Tim Kirk, um, came across, um, you know, this deep probing essay about the secret meanings of The Shining, and, and immediately it seemed like a, a great premise for a, uh, um, you know, for a follow-up and one about a topic that normal human beings had heard of. And, you know, I remember, you know, The Shining having a similarly alarming effect on me as a kid. I snuck into, you know, the theater when I was like 10 or 11 or something and barely made it, you know, 10 minutes into the movie. And so then me and Tim talked about it and talked about it and eventually decided that if we could find a handful of alternate, um, you know, kind of interpretations of The Shining, that that could be kind of an inter- a cool project to juxtapose these different these different readings of the movie and let them kind of fight it out. And, you know, we were kind of surprised to discover that, you know, it was a bottomless pit and we were never going to be able to get all of them in. Yeah. And, and we discovered more, you know, as we as we went, and you know, I'm discovering today that, you know, they're still coming. What was kind of the qualifications for when you were looking for these people? You know, on the one hand, they had to have an interpretation that was, you know, kind of fascinating and revelatory, something that I wouldn't have thought of of my own on my own. But they also had to be, I don't have some sort of personal connection to it. There are people who, you know, talk about what something means, but I don't know. And it's not especially personal. And it's, you know, kind of a quality that's hard to define. But, you know, if when talking to them, you know, they get more and more excited and they can compare what they, and they're drawing from their own life and, you know, their own, you know, kind of private obsessions when working on The Shining. And you can kind of hear hear that excitement in their voice. Um, You know, that would be... Uh, <laughs> that makes it about more than just The Shining. And very quickly, you know, as me and Tim were tossing around, it became clear that it wasn't just about The Shining. And if it was only about The Shining, it would be less interesting, at least to me. Yeah, you know, I didn't really put that together until you said that. And then I think immediately of the woman whose son came in and was talking about this splitting headache. She talked about her son, and, you know, John Phil Ryan talks about his you know, and this is a movie about family. So family dynamics is 
an excellent way to get me add, you know, an emotional quality to what they're talking about. Now, what was your opinion coming in when it came to all of these different theories? Well, I mean, if you're asking, do I believe some, you know, other than others, never going to be as, you know, cut and dried as, you know, I think this one's right and that one's wrong. You know, especially since right and wrong only are kind of moving targets. You know, if if you're using the qualification that only, that it's only right, if, if things are in that part of the movie for the reason that Stanley Kubrick intended, it's ultimately unknowable. You know, he didn't he didn't leave a decoder behind and seemed to be the kind of guy who didn't want to confirm or deny. I mean, I've read quotes about him not wanting to confirm people's takes on things. You know, so that's, you know, kind of irrelevant. But for me, it's just more about, are they passionate? Do they believe it? Does it, am I able to watch the movie through their eyes and see it transformed in front of me? And there's a thing about, depending on how complicated these things are, you know, one or two sort of supporting points don't necessarily sell it. But as they start to accumulate, it becomes more and more and more, and more persuasive. You know, and I would fall under the spells of most all of them as I was working on it. You know, certainly, you know, I was teaching and bringing and, you know, raising a, I guess he was, my, my son was one or one and a half when I was making the movie. So a lot of it was happening in my home studio on weekends or, you know, at nights after bedtime. So it's two or three in the morning and you're reading up on this stuff. And if I would find myself getting kind of creeped out and, and afraid, I suspected I was onto something. I don't want to just assume, but when you say that you were teaching, were you teaching film? Yeah, I was teaching editing, film editing. Well, it, and, and it was great because I found myself saying things out loud about film editing that I had that I had never done before. And you know, I, it would be, I, I would say it out loud and see if it sounded like, you know, complete baloney, or if anybody would challenge me on it. So it was great to be spending a lot of time thinking and talking about you know, editing theory while I was working on that. You know, I remember, you know, going over the Kuleshov experiment and talking about, you know, how the same shot in a different context can have a different meaning, you know, and then, you know, I would do that during the day and then see how how well I could, how, how well I could demonstrate that, you know, in room 237 at night. How long did it take to get all the raw audio to kind of come together? And was there much stuff that was actually shot for the film? Well, there's a couple things shot in the film. Not a ton, you know, but a handful of things like, you know, Kubrick arranging the Calumet cans up on the shelf and like a VHS tape going into a, a deck, a, blue, a box of Blu-rays from Amazon opening up. I mean, it was actually something that me and Tim talked about the film for about a year, but from the first interview I did with Bill Blakemore to our premiere at Sundance was almost exactly a year. And then there was a little more mastering and fine-tuning for a couple of months after that. I really hate to ask this question, but I feel that I kind of have to. These days, like I know when somebody like a Craig Baldwin is playing around with found footage, he's uh, using a lot of stuff that just is so far out of any sort of legal realm. But here you are with a Warner Brothers film with so many other properties that you're kind of taking and remixing and all that, did you just have a terrific intellectual property lawyer? The short answer is yes. 
<laughs> um, in fact, he's the guy, if you go on Amazon and order copyright law for dummies, he is literally the lawyer who wrote it. But he didn't come on until pretty late in the game. I mean, I started this project thinking it was an underground movie that would probably never be noticed by Warner Brothers, the Kubrick estate, that would you know, maybe be seen by a couple of hundred people. And only as as it gained some momentum and was starting to come together, did we sit down, you know, and and have it vetted. But you know, certainly before we showed it, up to that point, I was working under you know my best understanding of of the fair use um, doctrine. So um, you know, if you if you look it up, you know, there's you know there's some there's some gray areas, but there's also footage in the film that we did have to license that didn't fall under fair use. Do you mind if I ask what that was? I'm sure Demons and Faust, um, those were the big ones, and then a couple of random shots here or there. Yeah, it's just amazing. I was so glad that you could make a film like that, just that it was able to utilize so much of a known, of known properties, you know, that I could actually recognize where a lot of the shots were coming from, even when it came to things other than The Shining. The, the biggest miracle is that it was able to play pretty widely, at least, you know, from my perspective. You know, again, I thought I was making an underground movie that wouldn't be of interest to more than a couple hundred people. So the fact that it could reach a wider audience, something as esoteric as, you know, a 90-minute meditation on the semiotics of a 30-year-old horror movie pulled in an experimental um, cut-up style, you know, blew my mind and continues to blow my mind. As you're making this, is there a point where you're like, wow, I really have something here and I really should send this out to some film festivals and see what I have? Well, you know, I do remember that point. I had rough cuts of self-contained scenes, you know, sitting on my computer at the studio and some friends of ours, um, of my wife and I, came by the house. And they weren't film people and they were certainly not Kubrick heads. You know, they were just kind of asked, you know, what I was, what I was doing. And... You know, I showed them one scene that I thought was kind of one of the stronger scenes. And they were into it, and they asked to see more. And, like, I showed them one more, and then, you know, they pressed me, and I really tried to talk them out of it because I thought that I was boring them by forcing them to watch this private art project of mine that I'd been tinkering with in the garage. But, you know, they genuinely wanted to see more, and in a way I saw them as, like, a fantastic kind of focus group because you know certainly people interested in experimental film or obsessed with Stanley Kubrick would check it out but I was pretty gratified that these folks who come from a different perspective you know really responded super strongly to it when you made that decision to submit it to Sundance and you managed to get in what's that feeling like for you it was pretty good. <laughs> I don't know how I, 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 I don't know how to describe it in a way that's more nuanced than it was awesome and exciting. If the Esther Mahel playing at Sundance was a shot on the arm, well, that was still a you know a short film you know that w- that wouldn't get seen too too broadly outside the festival. But you know a feature is a real it's a, it's something a little more substantial. So I was thrilled for the opportunity to show it there, but also you know the idea that um, hey, if things go if I play my cards right, I might be able to get to make another one. I might be able to you know stop teaching part time. And just work on and just work on my films all day. Yeah, and the, and the next one I was able to do, and, and the real dividend was I was able to make the next one, you know, during business hours. That is the dream come true, right? It is absolutely. In my case, it was a little deferred, but you know, no less sweet, no, no less sweet for that. 
I imagine that you get a lot of questions about 237, and I imagine that a lot of them are exactly the same. Probably you might even get the same question twice in one day, or definitely from film festival to film festival. What are some of those frequently asked questions that you normally get? Which theory is which theory do you believe in the most? How did you get permission to use the footage? See, I knew I didn't want to ask that one. Just because it's asked frequently doesn't mean that it doesn't flow naturally from the project. It wouldn't be of interest to people, you know, who want to see it. I haven't yet reached the the point where, you know, I'm sick of people interested in something I've done and wanting to talk about it. Do you believe this Stanley Kubrick faked the moon landing? Nothing that's probably too surprising. I think they all come pretty naturally from, you know, from what you see in the film. It's interesting because coming at it from where I'm coming from it, I am much more of a student of uh, film theory. So watching a documentary about people explaining a film, however outside of the normal realm of possibility it is, I'm just sitting here just absorbing it like, yep, okay, yeah, I can see that. Yeah, you know, just... There was nothing in there where I was just like, wow, this, this is just too bizarre. This is too crazy. Yeah, well, David Bordwell wrote a great article about it that I was thrilled to see. And part of where he was coming from was being steeped in film theory like he and you are. These folks who have been described as being pretty outrageous by some people fit into the world that you know he's lived in for years. Even if most of them aren't part of academia or maybe using different language to describe these things. I have to say that you also helped turn me on to a lot of movies that I hadn't seen before just by the use of some of the clips of them. Oh, cool. Which ones? The biggest one was probably The Agency, the one with Lee Majors. Oh, yeah. That one's hard to find. I don't even remember how I dug it up, but um, it, it's got to be some sort of illegal DVD type thing because just the cover looks like one of those things that you buy at the dollar store where it's like Robert Mitchum is... 20 years old, Lee Majors looks like he's pulled right out of uh, the fall guy. <laughs> well, it might be that that one fell out of copyright, you know, in that that, gray, that stuff is gray market, not black market. You're probably already familiar with Looker, but I can't evangelize that one enough. Now, that's a movie that is incredibly ahead of its time and is so much more relevant today than when it was made. How did the nightmare come about? And was that also kind of a calling of the the same kind of pool of people who have been plagued by dreams and nightmares for years? Yeah, well, I mean, all three of these movies, you know, are variations of the theme. Different people kind of weighing in on, you know, a phenomenon that, you know, has affected them profoundly, um, you know, and around the periphery of it, things that have affected me. You know, so I've had sleep paralysis a few times, and it's something that sticks with you. You won't be surprised to hear. And in a way, it seemed like a good follow-up to Room 237 since, you know, Room 237 is a documentary about a horror movie. This one is too, only it is in some ways trying to be a horror movie itself. And it, you know, kind of pokes a stick at, you know, some notions, you know, that, that might have inspired, you know, the birth of horror movies. And, and it gave me a chance to, to shoot some, to actually shoot some stuff for the first time in a while. And it looks so good, especially some of the, the nightmare sequences themselves. Oh, well, thanks. But I like how even I was just uh, rewatching it yesterday and some of those shots where you just have, you're kind of outside of the room from the character and just kind of keeping them at a distance in some of those shots are really nice. Cool, thanks. Yeah, that was um, a thing that's burnt into me from 
I don't know, some childhood viewing of our town, probably. The one that I'm very curious about is the movie that you produced, Director's Commentary, Terror of Frankenstein. Can you tell me more about that? Well, Tim, you know, who produced 237, had the idea of writing a fictional commentary track for a Frankenstein movie. And um, if I remember right, I think originally the idea was they would shoot a whole new Frankenstein movie and then talk about the behind the scenes. And he was watching every Frankenstein movie ever made. Um, he's long since been obsessed with that story. And I watched a couple of them. And when we came across Terror Frankenstein, which stars, of all people, Leon Vitale, who's been in, you know, a bunch of Kubrick movies and played a big part behind the scenes of The Shining and ironically kind of made fun of Room 237 in the New York Times, I said, oh, that should totally be the one. <laughs> and I met Leon at a film festival, appropriately enough called the Stanley Film Festival, at the hotel that inspired The Shining. And we got along pretty well. So as this got further along, you know, I was able to convince him to play himself. And Tim and his cousin Jay wrote this amazing script about the madness and murder that happened in the wake of the production of this movie. And with Clue Gulliger, for some horrible reason, I'm blanking on the name of uh, the guy who played the writer um, in Leon. And then we went into a studio and recorded the script. And, you know, I spent some time trying to place everything so that the dialogue would fit in moments that were most synchronized, um, sometimes accidentally synchronized to things that they were saying. You know, it kind of creates this whole fictional backstory overlaid on the, uh, on the original. You talked about Leon kind of tearing you down when it comes to Room 237. I know that uh, Stephen King said that you were full of it too. Is that right? Yeah, that was great. If you're you're going to have people talking crap about you, it's awesome for them to be accomplished titans, you know, rather than anonymous internet trolls. But also, he said that he only watched half of it, which is great, because it's in the second half where um, Jay Widener really talks trash about him, and then I used a shot from Creepshow where he's like a a hillbilly um, sitting in a dilapidated hut. I'm not going to talk trash about him. I love Stephen King. I'm a fan of the book and a a, a ton of stuff that he, a a ton of stuff that he's done. But, um, you know, I would say like, you know, he liked the producer, you know, of the shining, you know, are not fans of room two, three, seven, but it makes all the sense in the world to me. I mean, if we're talking about how the shining is seen differently by different folks, those people in particular are going to have very strong emotional attachments to that book, to that movie, and are probably physically and psychologically incapable of watching, you know, two, three, seven in the same way that you might. How many times do you think that you've seen The Shining now? Whether probably add up all the pieces in a whole. Forwards in real time with the sound on, you know, maybe maybe fifteen. Maybe, I, I don't think 20, but, you know, maybe close. But, you know, there was a two-year period where it seemed like I was watching nothing but The Shining. And, and, and in the wake of 237, you know, I saw it a couple more times at screenings where they would do a double feature, you know, and I saw the forwards-backwards thing, you know, projected in theaters twice, which is kind of amazing if you watch it, uh, if you watch it all the way through. I mean, there's particular images that stand out, but it does some strange and wonderful stuff when you, wa- when you watch the whole thing. That was a very fascinating part. And then I kept thinking, 
should it be offset by a few minutes because of the ending that was cut? Well, also, the European cut of the movie is like 20 minutes shorter, too. And I remember somebody posted that on some message board debating it, and I think John Phil Ryan said, some people have too much time on their hands worrying about that kind of crap. I have to say, the one thing I cannot see, no matter how many times I've watched 237 or The Shining, is when the one guy is talking about Stanley's face in the clouds. Yeah, yeah. Can never see that. I don't know. Is it just me? Could you ever see it? Uh, you know, I'm going to give you the most unsatisfying answer of all, which is I think so, but I'm not completely sure that what I'm seeing is what he means. The majority of people say they can't see it, though I've certainly, you know, seen a couple of people, you know, who say they can. But you know, it's a wonderful metaphor for the whole, you know, project because you know I've heard I, I've heard the thing compared to, you know, seeing images in the clouds before. You know, seeing you know, seeing um, you know, seeing these meanings in The Shining, and there was a pretty good debate, you know, about the notion of paradoia, if I pronounce that right. You know, where people will project they will will project it will project meaning on random data, but again, John Phil Ryan, you know, to the rescue, had the you know best rebuttal to that notion, which is. The Shining is a piece of art, and art is not randomly generated data. It was something made by a particular person for a particular point. What are you working on these days? Nothing I'm ready to announce, but I'm actually kind of developing like three or four things at once, waiting to see at which point I have to focus all my energies on uh, on one in particular. I think two of them are documentaries and two of them are narrative, but you know they're all coming from a similar you know kind of mindset and tone, so... You know, hopefully they'll look a little bit different, but there'll be a you'll 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 feel a similarity in tone. Is there a place online where people can kind of keep up with you and see what you've been up to? Rodneyasher dot com or my Twitter. Well, hey, thank you so much. I'm oh, sure. Great to talk to you, man. Not only are you a film critic, but you are also a filmmaker. Can you tell me about some of the films that you've made? I think it was uh, around about 15 years ago I uh, made my first short film, uh, which was The Victim. That was uh, It was actually a half hour, 35 minutes uh, short, so it wasn't really that short a film. It was more like an episode of a TV show. Um, and I'd, I'd never been on a film set before, you know, uh, but... I'd written a script and I, just, I was very lucky. I stumbled across some local filmmakers who were looking for a script and uh, they surprisingly agreed to let me direct it. So um, without having to go to university or uh, do any training or anything, I got straight in there and uh, directed the project with about 25 people involved. And um, yeah, it was a huge project. It took, it took about a year to do most of it production planning to get around there. Uh, uh, budget limitations, you know. Um, made a couple of more sh- short films after that, then ran out of money for a while. Uh, and at that point, I thought, okay, let's do some uh, film critique type of stuff, you know. Um, I've been studying the movies of my favorite directors to try and 
I was trying to suss out basic stuff about uh, how they visually convey information as directors. I was particularly interested in shot choices, uh, shot compositions, and editing styles. So I was studying Kubrick, Hitchcock, um, and Ridley Scott, uh, among others. Uh, you know, just trying to break down the, the the core details of their visual styles. And it was through that process that I by sheer accident, wasn't expecting it, started to notice these hidden implications, hidden themes in stuff like uh, Alien and The Shining, uh, started picking up on all kinds of things. And I was like, wow, I, I would never have just, never have come, never have noticed this stuff just in a, a casual viewing. But you, when you actually start writing down the details of the scene as you're watching it, you start to pick up on a hell of a lot more implications than you uh, otherwise would notice. So yeah, that that got me started on the, the film critic stuff. And then a few years later, I went back to the um, fiction filmmaking and I made uh, my first feature film, which was Turning Your Grave, uh, which was just a mammoth two-year project, ultra low budget, ultra ambitious, cheap as hell in terms of film and equipment, but um, the film is absolutely loaded with hidden themes and stuff like that. I mean, people say to me, oh, you read too much into Kubrick, David Lynch and so on. They should watch Turn in Your Grave and see how I do it as well, you know. <laughs> do you remember that first moment when you kind of realized that there was more going on than what was just at the surface of the movies you were watching? I'm trying to remember whether it was Alien or The Shining. It was one of those two. With The Shining, it was the Native American thing, you know, studying the, the shot sizes and particularly the set designs because I knew they were constructed sets. I was quite fascinated. Why, why is this film so scary when the sets are so beautiful? It doesn't look like a haunted hotel. It, it hasn't got dark shots and so on. So I was studying the, the layout and I was thinking, okay, some of the rooms are huge, which is quite imposing. Um, and the fact that, it, that the hotel is like a maze and so on. So I was looking at those kinds of things. Uh, and in the process of looking at that, I, was, I started to notice, hey, hold on, there's a picture of an Indian on the wall there. Um, there's Indian designs in those windows, uh, and there's Indian designs around the, the edge of that elevator. What's with all this Indian stuff, you know? You notice those things, and then you remember, oh, there was dialogue about the hotel being built on Indian burial ground. And then you're like, hold on, what's going on here? And you start picking up all, all this stuff. And after a while, it becomes like, yeah, there's a, a suppressed history of uh, Native American genocide. Uh, um, and it seems to be a factor in this film. So uh, that was one of the first two. And the other one was with uh, Alien, um, which was the uh, birth trauma themes. The, the, the characters are sort of psychologically wanting to stay in the comfort of the womb um, and the whole idea of uh, this alien thing isn't just about the creature it's about the alien world outside the womb the cold terrifying world outside the womb um, and I can't remember exactly what it was in the film that got me onto that um, yeah I, I, I can't remember exactly but I ended up writing an analysis on that as well so those were the first two what's well, one thing to go ahead and watch these movies, pick up on these things, but it's quite another thing to actually go ahead and have the chutzpah to put together these videos that you've been doing, and you've been doing that since, what, 2007? Yeah, yeah. So what was your motivation when you did that? Was it just, again, to kind of teach yourself? 
I was quite impressed with what I'd found in these films. I wasn't necessarily so much impressed with myself for finding it. I was impressed with, wow, these directors have done some extra things here and don't seem to have told anybody about it. Uh, and I thought, you know, I, th I think a lot of people would find this stuff fascinating. I started mentioning some of it to film fan friends, and they were pretty fascinated. And I thought, well, maybe maybe people out there in the internet community would be, uh, maybe maybe some uh, geeky weirdos here and there on the internet would take an interest in this stuff. So I thought, you know, I'll just throw out a, a couple of videos. I mean, I, I'd already done a lot of video editing anyway, so um, making the transition from shooting fiction films uh, editing those to editing uh, film analysis uh, was quite a natural crossover for me. So yeah, I got a couple of videos out on Alien and The Shining, and yeah, I mean, it, it, people jumped onto it right away and were like, "Wow!" And I, I think it only took um, about two months to get something like ten thousand subscribers on YouTube just from about three or four videos. Uh, the Clockwork Orange video I did back then, which was uh, quite a controversial one because it's such a political film. Um, that got a lot of people interested uh, and I also got Wired Magazine one of the uh, writers there was um, attacking me for making these videos uh, which I was very surprised at but that brought a further audience in and then when I did the video on the meaning of the monolith in 2001 A Space Odyssey with the uh, well my interpretation anyway that the monolith is basically the cinema screen rotated at 90 degrees to be like a doorway and it kind of represents the movie itself as a sort of a, an alternate dimension and the audience of the apes. When I did that video, that I got tons and tons of emails from all over the world, just people saying, like, wow, what the hell is this, you know? Um, and it turned out I wasn't the only one who discovered that as well, that um, I think uh, a writer, I can't remember his name, uh, had published a book with a paragraph about it a few years before. Um, and I only found out about that because an academic accused me of plagiarism on it, uh, but I'd never come across that writer's work before. Um, so, yeah, then uh, from there I realized, hey, th there is a big audience for this stuff, uh, and let's see what else we can find. So, naturally, I did a lot of Hitchcock stuff, Psycho and things like that, and carried on with the Kubrick, and, yeah, I've been doing it on off ever since. Yeah, I don't get the anger, because it seems like there are so many people – that where you are pushing buttons and I don't understand why uh, they react the way they do. One of the funny things about that is um, I found that that happens both online and in everyday life. A lot of people who, who I know are seriously into their films, the type of people who watch their favorite movies again and again. Um, and when you discuss those movies with them, they know all the scenes, they know all the, the lines of dialogue when you talk to them about these uh, hidden themes and meanings and details, uh, they react very well. They're like, wow, you know, because they're like, now you've brought some new light to a movie that I love to watch again and again. So I get to watch it again, and uh, it's almost like a first time watching it because of uh, those new themes. Um, but I find that the type of people who only watch a movie once and then forget about it, they seem to be the type of people who get quite annoyed uh, when somebody says, hey, there's deeper stuff here. And I tend to think there's a lot of intellectual laziness with a lot of people generally anyway. Most people like to be presented with extremely simplistic takes on world events and everyday experiences. They want simple, bite-sized, headlined descriptions of things uh, that don't require much uh, complex thought process. 
Um, and that applies to when they're watching the, the news on the TV. It applies to when they're reading newspapers. And it applies to when they're watching movies. They don't want to be told that, hey, you need to actually think and study in order to understand this on a deeper level. If you don't do it, you're missing out. I think it hurts their intellectual ego a little bit, which is a real shame because there's so much they can learn and enjoy in that process, you know. One of the things I really like about your Shining series is that it is a series and that there are so many different ways that you kind of pull that movie apart, you know, thinking of like the Gold Room video, the uh, discussion of the bear imagery. I mean, there are so many great ways that you can look at this movie, and I appreciate that you've really gone in through different ways. You know, you don't just say, this is what the film is about. You present different arguments for different interpretations of it. A film like The Shining, it's like a maze that has many entrances, you know, um, and you can enjoy the maze from each entrance. Yeah. I was very impressed with the Gold Room video and especially the amount of work that you put into it. Now, you've even been to the Kubrick archives. What was yeah. that experience like? That was fantastic. That that was uh, one of my favorite experiences with the Kubrick films. And it's funny that you, you brought up the thing about some people getting really angry about uh, some of the interpretations of these movies. And the, the Kubrick's Gold story is a classic one. A lot of people get really upset about that, uh, particularly people who are afraid of um, any anti-authoritarian or sort of conspiracy theory interpretations of things. I mean, I personally think everybody is a conspiracy theorist anyway because we get the media selling us conspiracy theories every day and we believe a lot of them. But when you start believing in an interpretation of things which is not fed to you by the media or which is counter to the media, then it suddenly gets labeled as conspiracy theory. But with the, the Kubrick's gold story, uh, I mean, yeah, you know, when you read the Kubrick biographies, he was, um, he liked gold. He liked buying gold. He used to advise people, hey, go and buy gold. The price has dropped a few percent today. Go and get some. There's lots of reports of that in, um, in the biographies about him. Um, and yeah, you, you get the gold room in the movie, which wasn't in the novel. Um, and when I went to the Kubrick archives, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, what I discovered there was, has made me 99% certain of that theme. Um, I, I don't like to ever say 100% certain, you know, because you like to leave a, a bit of room for interpre- interpretation or reinterpretation on everything in life. Um, but yeah, you know, the, the, they rolled out to me Jack's scrapbook, the, the prop on the desk from when he does his writing. And the book, it was huge. And it, every page was full of stories about the gold standard, um, uh, Nazi gold being shifted around in World War II, uh, Woodrow Wilson and all the famous bankers of, at the time, who I've, who I've claimed uh, that some of those people are in the photograph with Jack at the end of the film. And people say, oh, no, you're wrong. That's not that, that person and so on. But when you go to the Kubrick archives and you find... Um, specific stories about uh, Roosevelt and the, the gold standard um, in Jack's scrapbook, it it kind of makes the whole theory hard to dismiss. Uh, and the various photos that were surrounding the picture of Jack at the end of the film, uh, I think there's something like 21 photos uh, in, in total on the whole wall. The rest of the pictures that are on that wall are still there in the archives. And... Um, when you look at them, yeah, it's it's all the presidents, it's the movie stars. Uh, Woodrow Wilson is in there. 
Um, the only one I've been able to actually properly recognize in the movie is that, that James Mason, who was in Lolita, uh, is just below and to the left of the Jack Nicholson picture, and he is looking up at Jack Nicholson, which I just thought was cool as hell, you know. Uh, so, yeah, uh, you know, when you go to, go to the Kubrick archives and you find things like that, it's like, no, no, this ain't conspiracy theory. The, these themes really were there, yeah. Yeah, Kubrick seems like such a careful filmmaker. So when you're pointing out things in other videos about the way that we have furniture moving or disappearing, the the bear rug moving or disappearing, I mean, these are all such simple continuity things that any normal filmmaker of his stature would, would definitely catch. So that yeah. they're there on purpose is uh, – it's really wonderful that you're pointing these things out. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah. The, the some of the continuity errors are so extreme. You just you, you can't imagine how they would even happen by accident. Some of them, you know. <laughs> Did you just look at things for The Shining, or were there other films that you were going there to research? Oh yeah, when I've been to the the archives, I've looked at things on the Clockwork Orange. Um, I didn't do a hell of a lot of research on Eyes Wide Shut just yet. Uh, it was mainly The Shining and Clockwork Orange. Uh, and 2001 A Space Odyssey as well. I was searching around uh, for things on that. Yeah, I was quite fascinated by a series of uh, paintings, concept paintings that were done for 2001 by Christian Kubrick. Uh, who, anyone who's a, uh, you know, sort of knowledgeable on Kubrick knows that his wife was uh, a painter, or still is, I assume. Um, and she often painted pictures that would end up in his movie. She she painted the pictures that adorn the uh, apartment in Eyes Wide Shut, big pictures of flowers and gardens. Uh, she painted a huge picture that is in the background of the rape scene in The Clockwork Orange. Um, yeah, her paintings pop up here and there in Kubrick's films. So she did these concept paintings for 2001, and she'd incorporated a lot of things relating to the artist Magritte. He used to have certain things that would pop up time and time again in his work, like like he would paint these uh, spherical steel uh, spheres that would be floating in the sky, and they would have a ring around the center of them. And some people have interpreted them as being the bells that are hung around horses' necks. Uh, I don't think it, I've never read any confirmation of what they're supposed to be. But there must be dozens of Magritte paintings that have got these things. And they were there in Christian Kubrick's paintings for 2001. And, and several other Magritte details were there as well. And that made me sort of think, well, hold on. Christian Kubrick seems to be aware herself that there are hidden themes in these movies. I, I doubt she would ever admit to it any more than Kubrick would have. But yeah, yeah, it was there in the painting. So that was really fascinating. And uh it took me uh, a couple of years to hunt down those paintings. Um, somebody had posted them on a, a Chinese website, and I managed to snatch them all. I think there was about 60 paintings in all. I uh, managed to sna snatch them all, download them, get them saved, and then somebody removed them from the Chinese site. Um, I think there was a copyright infringement claim or something about that. So, I, yeah, I managed to get hold of those pictures. And I, to my knowledge, they're not currently available online anywhere. Uh, so that, those are worth checking out at the archives. What do you think of the film Room 237? Yeah, I mean, Rodney Asher contacted me before he made uh, Room 237. He asked me to be involved, and um, I was kind of interested, but I didn't know who he was. I didn't know whether I could trust him to make a good film and 
uh, represent my views accurately or whether he'd misrepresent me um, and misrepresent my arguments. So I said no. Um, I was also put off by the fact that uh, some of the other people that he said were going to be interviewed in, in it were people who I thought, well, no, I don't really want to be associated with them because um, <laughs> I just consider them to be a little bit wacky, you know. That may sound ironic coming from me, but, you know, that was one of the reasons I decided not to be involved. Uh, and I, I knew that if that film got made and released uh, quite widely, I, I knew that certain sections of the press would latch on to the least credible uh, arguments and uh, interpretations that were put forward in the film and would use it to discredit the entire project and to try and discredit film analysis in general. Um, and that's exactly what happened. So I'm glad I didn't take part. But Rodney Asher seemed like a really nice guy. Um, he kept in touch with me and we, we had a little bit of contact uh, after Room 237 was released and we, we talked a bit about the different media responses to his film. Uh, and he sent me a a copy of it as well, which was quite nice. And, um, yeah, I, I actually quite enjoyed the film. Uh, I only agreed with about maybe 20 or 30% of what was in it. But even the stuff that I didn't agree with, I didn't find it offensive or anything like that. I mean, I can still enjoy an interpretation of a film, even if I don't agree, uh, agree with it, which is a, a strange thing that some people seem unable to do that. I think it was John Fell Ryan doing the forwards-backwards editing of the film where he uh, displayed the film over itself forward and backward simultaneously to me that was nonsensical but it was really really fun and interesting and I thought that was the best part of the film uh, really enjoyable um, so I don't know what's going to happen from that point I, I think um, uh, Rodney Asher did mention to me at one point I'm sure but maybe he might deny this if you ask him I don't know if you've already spoke to him but uh, he was talking about possibly doing a similar um, movie about John Carpenter's The Thing, which would be fantastic if something like that got out there as well. Um, haven't seen Route 237. I would probably agree the second time round if Rodney Asher gave me a, an offer to talk about uh, The Thing because it's one of my favorite films as well. So are there films or filmmakers whose work is just too daunting for you or are you up for taking on anybody? <laughs> I think a lot of them I have already tackled. Uh, I mean, 2001 A Space Odyssey was always the one right at the beginning that I was thinking, oh, my God, how, how the hell do you break this down? And because I was getting so many emails from people saying, hey, you know, you've done stuff on The Shining and Clockwork Orange, come on, 2001. So, yeah, then, then I got straight into 2001. And that was the first really, really in-depth study that I did where, you know, I did a big article on my site that was multiple chapters studying different things, whereas the previous videos had been about 15 to 20 minutes long each. And the Space Odyssey analysis I did at that time, if it was flashed out into a single video, would be a few hours long. So, yeah, I think having done Space Odyssey, uh, I feel fairly confident about um, most other movies. But there are occasionally ones that I come across where, you know, so for example, Donnie Darko, a lot of people email him about that one. Can you do an analysis of this? And I like Donnie Darko as a film, but I, for some reason, I just can't really see much more in it. I, I, you know, I watched it a couple more times, just trying to make sense of it. And it, I don't know, I sort of came to the conclusion that it was more or less like an MTV, an extended MTV music video, quite quirky, 
um, and obscure. Because there are filmmakers out there who make deliberately obscure films to get people talking about them, but they haven't really put anything uh, intellectually interesting beneath it. They're just sort of throwing in a load of random stuff in the hope that people will find it interesting. I think that sometimes happens, and it's very easy to do. Uh, but then again, it might just be me not being able to get the message. How often do you run into copyright issues with your videos on YouTube? It's happened quite a lot over the years. At first, it didn't happen hardly at all because YouTube was fairly new at the time. You know, back in 2007, it hadn't been going for too long. And the legalities of uploading movies and stuff, um, that stuff was still slowly, it was in its infant stages, you know, the, um, and it took a, a few years before um, YouTube really started to clamp down on the uh, illegal uploaders. Um, you know, in a way, I'm glad that they did because I, I think um, commercial movies that are good should be profitable and not just be released for free, and which makes it a waste of time uh, making them. Occasionally, I started getting uh, copyright infringement notices that were a real nuisance because YouTube hadn't provided any way of countering those uh, claims. But eventually, they, they did. They set up a, a system that they've got now, which is uh, you can, you know, somebody puts a claim against your video, and you can you can respond to it, and you can. There's a multiple choice option. You can go fair use, educational, and you get to write a little explanation of why you've used the footage and so on. And I've found that um, four times out of five, that is acceptable, and the copyright holders just let the issue go and release the claim on the video, and it gets put back up. But occasionally, there will be a company that insists on the copyright claim. Actually, it's not even the company half the time. It's it's these sort of, um, what would you call them? These uh, go-betweeners, these sort of middlemen companies who specialize in nothing but copyright claims. So they have a contract with the various distributors, and they go around hunting on YouTube trying to find copyright infringements, and if they find them and they get videos taken down, they get paid by the distributor for doing it. So when you provide a uh, an a legal explanation for your fair use of the footage, those middlemen are not interested because they're just trying to make a buck out of the infringement claims. So they're, they're a real nuisance, and I've had some real run-ins with them, and I've usually won on those, except the, the, there was one instance I had with the movie Dread, which is fantastic film and it's what a shame it was a flop um but yeah there was a a, a, mil, a middleman company i think it was called billion dollar boy just thought to get a mention of them out there because they are a pardon my french but they were a fucking nuisance they would not listen to any uh explanations that were given to them of why uh, i'd use the footage and i was promoting their movie very strongly yeah and trying to whip up support for you know to get a, a sequel funded so it wasn't even Lionsgate, the distributor, that was the, the problem in that, that instance. It was this middle ground company. There was one other instance in which uh, uh, I, don't, I don't think I'll mention the movie itself because I don't want to embarrass the uh, producer and director. But sometimes you get filmmakers who've made great movies, but they are actually really money orientated, despite the fact that they've made great movies. And when they see that somebody has done uh, a video on YouTube, um, you know, it might be a film analysis video giving a hell of a lot of praise to their movie, but they see it as, no, we want royalties for this. 
and they won't listen to any arguments. And I had one particular a company that was belonging to the director and producer of a specific film that I'd done a film analysis of, a very praising film analysis. And they had their lawyer harass me with letters for weeks. And I kept getting back to them and I, I laid out my uh, legal explanations again and again. Um, and this lawyer gave up in the end. He couldn't, he couldn't beat me because uh, I've, I've been in legal battles before on other issues and I've beaten big companies before. Um, and I've, I've learned how they operate um, and how to counter them at the correspondence stage before a court case even begins. Um, so that one was very, very annoying. Um, and I actually had to threaten. I had to say, look, you know, if you persist with this, I'm going to have to go public. and I'm going to have to name and shame the particular filmmakers involved in this who are trying to bring copyright claims against a person who's praising their work and promoting their work. That one was very annoying. Uh, Starship Troopers I also had a big problem with uh, years ago. It turned out in the end there was one specific staff member at uh, Sony in, in their copyright department who personally had a problem with that video. And I think it was because it was quite an intensely political video. We talked a lot about the war on terror, parallels with uh, Starship Troopers and uh, the invasion of Iraq with the <laughs> the bugs in the movie basically representing the population of whatever country is being invaded and so on. You know, some people get really offended at that stuff. Um, and yeah, this particular individual at Sony had a huge problem with it and kept harassing me about this copyright claim. He actually managed to get my account, uh, YouTube account blocked for several weeks. Um, and again, I had to, you know, I, gave all my legal arguments to him and he wasn't interested. Uh, and I, I had to threaten him with exposure. I said, look, I am going to name and shame you publicly and I'm going to ask all of my 30-odd thousand subscribers, whatever it was at the time, I'm going to tell them all to, to email you and tell, tell, tell you their opinions on the subject as well. And in the end, I spoke to a colleague of his because he, was, he wasn't in the office that day and she said, I can't see what the problem is. You, the, the the claim should have been released it's just a film analysis, it's an educational video you're promoting our work, yeah we'll release it so yeah, sometimes it just turns out that it's one arsehole individual uh, in the copyright office I appreciated the um, Starship Troopers video because of the way that you were talking about the way that the um, black characters were being portrayed in that and I had never picked up on that before Actually, funnily enough, you have hit the nail on the head there because this uh, particular guy who had a problem with the movie uh, was also black as well. As you know, where I talked about with that movie, there's um, the movie parodies uh, the falseness that goes with a lot of the multiculturalism propaganda that we get. Um, now, I'm not talking from the perspective of uh, you know white power and all that kind of stuff. I'm not into that rubbish. Um, I believe in, you know, equal opportunities and fairness for everybody. Absolutely, I'm all for that. But when you get reverse discrimination, that is something I don't like. And that is something that was specifically put into Starship Troopers as well. And I can't remember the details exactly. Um, yeah, there was a, 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 black, a black female character punches a guy in the movie and knocks him down to the ground. And the same arm that she punches him with then gets burnt off by a giant acid-spewing bug in a later scene. And I was like, wow, is that deliberate? You know. Um, and then when I read some of the interviews with the, the writer of the, 
the film was uh, Ed, Ed Numaya or Ed Numia, I can never remember how to spell his name. He talked about uh, multicultural fascism was the term that he used, where you have fake equality uh, that is used to dupe people into accepting another form of totalitarianism. Um, and yeah, it's, it's quite arguable that we have got elements of that going on in the world today. Um, yeah, so I think that particular aspect of the film was bound to upset some people. What are you working on currently? Kubrick's first film, Fear and Desire, which not many people have seen. I, I watched it about maybe four years ago. It was a terrible copy, so it, it wasn't very enjoyable at all. Um, recently, uh, you know, it got a, um, a Blu-ray release, and I got a you know cleaner copy of it. Enjoyed enjoyed it more. Um, but this one's going to be quite different because you know normally with the Kubrick films and talking about uh, hidden themes and um, you know the, the the superb way that he's made these films. But this time around with Fear and Desire, he Kubrick did a bad job of the movie. Um, there's some really terrible technical stuff. Um, he didn't have any concept of um, the crossing the line with shot compositions. Um, so you get these uh, dialogue scenes where the camera is all over the place and you, you get confused as to who's talking to who. There are instances of specific shots being used repeated in several scenes because Kubrick didn't get enough uh, footage, which is something he corrected later in his career by doing endless takes. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a really interesting look at... Um, Kubrick in his infant filmmaker stages and uh, the mistakes that he made, which, you know, all filmmakers make with their first movies, and uh, Kubrick made them as well. So the, the video that I'm doing studies a lot of that, technical and artistic mistakes. But at the same time, um, he was putting an effort into putting uh, hidden themes into that movie, uh, and it was his very first movie, and he was in his early 20s. I uh, found some really... Um, interesting stuff uh, i will reveal one uh, specific aspect of the film which i thought was hilarious um there are two sets of soldiers in the movie and the movie is set in a unspecified war and when you look at the equipment that they've got that's the 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 soldiers the rifles that they've got and so on it's like yeah this is just world war ii basically but what kubrick did because he was the costume man on the film as well i mean he, he did multiple roles but the two sets of soldiers have uh, costumes that each one of them is a combination of both Nazi uniforms and U.S. Army uniforms. So the lead characters have got German Stalmhelm helmets, uh, <laughs> which are covered with camouflage. Um, and you, you, only, you can notice by the shape of the helmets that they've got Nazi helmets. Uh, and they've also got uh, U.S. Army insignia on their jackets that are simply shifted upside down. And then you see the enemies in the film and they've got like grey Nazi type uniforms with US Army helmets. I, I was just laughing my head off when I saw that stuff. Uh, so it's really good to see Kubrick making a technically flawed film that still has artistic uh, merit. Yeah. I'm trying to remember, have you ever done anything on The Killing? No, I haven't. Um I've been thinking about that a lot lately, though, um, and I do want to get back to it. I've only seen the movie once. Um, well, yeah, I, eventually, ideally, you know, maybe within five years, I would like to have a 
deep film analysis made for every Kubrick film, you know, from Fear and Desire right through to Eyes Wide Shut. Uh, and yeah, hopefully The Killing and Paths of Glory would be a part of that. And Barry Lyndon, which everyone is asking me to do, <laughs> do Barry Lyndon. And I'm like, it's three hours plus long. It's huge. And I've got to read the novel and everything. Um, yeah, so I'd like to get them all done eventually. Are you doing any other film work presently? Yeah, Nightmare on Elm Street, which is just awesome. I put a video out a few days ago, which is, I think it was only about four minutes long, and it was just a little taster of some of the stuff I found in the film. Uh, yeah, it's just fantastic. It, I mean, Nightmare on Elm Street is partially uh, a great success story in that there are definitely themes and details in the film that Wes Craven did deliberately um, and did a great job of. But at the same time, I think he also accidentally stumbled across certain psychological devices uh, with that movie that he may not have intended or anticipated uh, a little bit of blind luck on top of the great project he was already doing. And one of the reasons I say that is because I don't think many other Wes Craven films have anywhere near the quality or originality of Nightmare on Elm Street. So yeah, it's 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 an awesome film, it really is. And uh, a lot of people knock it and say, oh, it's just a stupid 80s flick. No, it scared the hell out of me when I was 12 years old. I mean, um, I watched The Shining when I was seven years old uh, because you know, my dad was that type of guy who would let me watch just about anything. We just bought a VHS video uh, recorder and uh, video VHS rental stores had just become a new thing in society. Uh, and the very first two films my dad rented was Alien and The Shining, and I watched both of those on the same day, age seven, and was just blown away. Um, and The Shining did scare me at age seven, definitely, and it did give me some nightmares. But I was able to watch the whole film uh, and became a big fan of it. And then I think I was about nine years old, I read the novel of The Exorcist and watched The Exorcist, and that scared me a little bit as well, but, you know, I was still okay with it. And then when I tried to watch Nightmare on Elm Street at age 11, it really, really shook me up. I mean, I, I had to turn it off half half an hour into the film. It, it terrified me. Um, I think it was it was like the, the shock of the first murder scene where Tina gets killed in the bed and the amount of blood that was there. It was just so unexpected. And it, it, there's a bit of a parallel there with Hitchcock's Psycho, because Hitchcock had done something which was virtually never done in movies, which was to take a female lead character, get the audience uh, to associate, you know, to empathise with her and follow her story, and then suddenly kill her midway through the film, which the audience doesn't expect. And that sort of happened with Nightmare on Elm Street at the beginning, because Nancy isn't introduced as the lead. We're allowed to assume that Tina is the lead, and then she gets this horrible slaughter death by Freddy. That scared the hell out of me. And then when she showed up in the body bag in the school, I was like, oh, my God, this is just terrifying. This movie just gets worse and worse. So I had to tough. And it's one of the few instances in my entire life where I had to switch off a horror movie because I couldn't psychologically handle it. Um, and it was a few years later I went back um, after seeing uh, the third Nightmare on Elm Street film, which was Dream Warriors, which everybody loved. It was more like an action film, and you know it was great. But that made me go back and watch the first Elm Street film from start to finish. And then I discovered that all the scariest stuff happened in the first half hour. And I could have actually sat through the rest of the film when I was 11 years old. 
Uh, so yeah, I th- it wasn't just me as well because it was kids I went to school with who were like terrified of like Mary Elm Street. There was, you know, uh, I remember hearing about um, guys in our neighbourhood, teenagers who took the girlfriends to see it, and the girlfriends were crying when they left the movie and had nightmares and stuff. A very, very effective film. So where can people go to pick up some of your videos and uh, keep up with your work? Well, of course, there's the YouTube channel. Well, I've actually got uh, three YouTube channels now. Two of them are film analysis, and one of them is for short, bite-sized videos on political and social issues, which is a whole other sort of thing. But not everybody's into that stuff. But for those who are, go there and have a look at it. Um, So, yeah, the two YouTube channels, and I tend to mostly upload shorter videos on there now. And the longer videos that I make, which take a lot of effort to do, I sell on my website. So uh, people can just order them as digital downloads. Uh, and I would say about 70 or 80% of my work is, uh, has to be ordered. And I have to do it that way to earn a living. Since I started doing the digital downloads, this has really become quite a viable business. And I don't need to depend on an employer. I can work full time on this at home. Um, and I don't have to depend on the... Uh, ad revenue things on uh, YouTube, which I don't even bother with anyway. I don't monetize the videos. Uh, I don't really believe in it because I I think that the uh, commercial feedback of having people actually pay for your products, for me, that is uh, something that tells me that people are really enjoying the work if they're willing to pay for it. Yeah, so anybody who wants to buy the stuff, go to the site, and it's just a couple of clicks of a button. And there's lists of the film analysis videos there, and you can just pick them and download them straight to your hard drive, and then you've got them forever. Yeah, I tell people collativelearning.com, or I write it down for them, and then it gets misquoted as collectivelearning.com. Collativelearning.com, C-O-L-L-A-T-I-V-E, learning.com, and... To collate means to gather information and organize it, hence it's collative learning. And we were talking about The Shining. Now, did either of you guys have a chance to either watch the the Stephen King's The Shining, the miniseries, or perhaps even read Doctor Sleep, which was the sequel to The Shining? I haven't done either. I've got to confess. Yeah, I'm guilty as well. <laughs> <laughs> but I have a, I have a morbid curiosity about the the TV movie or the miniseries, uh, and I and I actually genuinely want to read Doctor Sleep if I can ever. Somehow find the time. I am a horrible, horrible person because I really wanted to watch the miniseries, but I have to say that I could not find four and a half hours to sit down and do it. And I just, I kind of am rejecting it on principle. And it's just, I mean, it's terrible. It's a terrible thing for me to say, but it's just, I've heard Stephen King complaining about the shining for so many years that it's just almost like, okay, Steven, here's your chance. You do it. And then it's like this mini series and I'm just, no, I don't even want to bother with it. I don't want to bother. So 
I mean, it's, I can understand why he gets upset about stuff. I can understand that the shining was very close to him personally, but it's interesting when, you know, to me, and I think to everybody on this conversation, we really find a lot of great things about the shining. It has been such a part of our lives for all of these years. It's to me one of the best adaptations of King's work. I mean, to me, it's kind of like LA Confidential, where the book and the movie are so completely different, and both of them stand alone as being great works of art. I don't know. What, what do you guys think about that? I, I I'm fascinated by adaptation and and the process and what it, what defines a good ad, adaptation and what doesn't. And I, you see, I, now it's, as I say, it's been a very long time since I read the book. But uh, as I recall, it is the sh- it is Stephen King's Shining. I mean, there are lots of details that have been changed, um, and a lot of details that have been changed. But but the ultimate core of it is the same, and it gets there. The movie gets there just in a different way, and and that's to me that's the best kind of adaptation because really books and movies are two entirely different things, and they function. Uh, and they have different strengths in they function in different ways and they have different kinds of strengths and weaknesses and I think about like a uh, a movie like Blade Runner, which is another seminal movie for me um is very different from the philip k Dick book i mean much more so probably than the shining movie is from the king book uh but it still comes to this it, it sort of ends up in the same place in its own way it finds its own way um to in, in some strange way to accomplish the same thing. And that, and that to me is much more exciting and probably much more effective than a lot of adaptations, particularly of like things like the Harry Potter books or, you know, where they're, they're letter perfect adaptations of what's written, but somehow miss the essence of what the book is. If only we had someone on this call who had been in a Stephen King adaptation. <laughs> well, it's 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 interesting because Christine Christine's very different than The Shining, you know, and that uh, The Shining was sort of. Uh, I guess I guess what makes The Shining different is I do feel I guess to me it does feel like the the book and the film are radically different, but I feel like what excuses it is that. Kubrick was doing something different and was genius enough to do it. I think the problem is most adaptations that radically change their progeny, progenitor, that's not really a word, is it? But, but, but most adaptations that throw out so much of the original, I, for me, do so for the worse and do so for not great reasons, whether it's commerciality or things that really have nothing to do with making a better story. Um, Shining to me was a rare case where I think the book stands on its own as a piece of art and so does the film but they're somewhat about different things and and looking at things in a very different way but Kubrick was a great enough filmmaker that he, the way somebody might take a a folk tale or something or or Shakespearean play and make an opera out of it and maybe even change a lot of the themes of it and change a lot of what but it's now a whole new thing that's rarely pulled off and I kind of feel, you know, I kind of feel like one or the other you've got to either really create something geniusly new or you've got to save what was great about the original what doesn't what i think so sadly happens 90 percent of the time is what made the original wonderful gets lost but it isn't replaced by anything equally wonderful so i think that's you know that's that's the trick i mean in the case of christine 
there were changes, but but I think it, it, it much more closely than than The Shining hewed to the book. I, I don't think there was, I don't think Bill Phillips' script, you know, I mean, yes, and condensing a 600-page book to a two-hour movie, a lot of things got lost and simplified, but but it, it stayed, I think, pretty true to thematically and, and idea-wise what King was going after. And, and King, from my brief conversation with him, which was, a great thrill, you know, was pretty happy with the film and uh, saw it as, as kind of capturing the book pretty well. So that was a very different kind of situation because there, I think, I think Kubrick was saying, yeah, I'm taking this and it's a jumping off point for me in the same way that, you know, Dr. Dr. Strangelove was based on you know, originally two very serious books about world war three. And, and it ended up being a insane black comedy. I mean, I think, I think Kubrick was one of those filmmakers who would take a piece of material and it, it, it was a diving board to leap from. It wasn't something that he was doing that piece of material. Um, and, and I think that he was one of the few people great enough to, to pull that off well. Um, and and I think, you know, God bless you if you can do it. But I think that takes a, a certain kind of brilliance. Thinking about just your two guys' filmographies. Now, I know, uh, Vincenzo, you've tried to get uh, Neuromancer and, and High Rise, which were two adaptations of, of uh, previous novels. Um, but thinking about like uh, Cube and Haunter and Splice and these things, it feels like, and correct me if I'm wrong, but those were all based off of original screenplays, correct? Oh, yeah. And then with you, Keith, I mean... Looking at like uh, Midnight Clear and Mother Night and The Chocolate War, those were already books. So it's got to be an interesting thing for you to take those. And I want to ask you the same question, Vincenzo, but for you, Keith, when you're working uh, with those properties and, and changing them into something for the screen, I mean, you have to know that you're going to be losing things. You have to know that you're going to have to, you know, work with what's there and kind of interpret it into new material or create things whole cloth if need be in order to tell a story for the screen. So that has to be a very interesting challenge for oh, you. Sure. No, I mean, it, it's, but I guess, you know, maybe I'm, because maybe I'm not as brilliant as Stanley Kubrick. I, I, I tend to start with books that I find tremendously powerful and that I, that have themes that I'm already excited by. And yes, I may change them or, or because I'm, because it is a different medium, but I, I tend to tend to stick. I, I, you know, what the things I fall in love with often about a book or tend to be the story, the characters, often the dialogue, even the images that are, that, that an author may create. So I don't tend to try to, I mean, I didn't write the script for mother night, but you know, that was, I was very intimately involved with developing the script, and it was Kirk Vonnegut. And we weren't going to try to outright Kirk Vonnegut. Now, we changed a lot of things to make it work in a cinematic language. But we weren't starting from the point of view of, well, we're just going to kind of take the book and then do our own thing. I mean, we were like, well, why do we love this book? And how do we preserve what we love about this book and then put it in a new, in a new language? Um, and, and I think most of the books that I've done, and, and really, I, I guess every feature I've done has been from something else. I mean, I've never done something that wasn't adapted from another piece of material of some sort. It was a piece of material that I loved. And, and I, I didn't go in with the idea that I was going to outright Scott Spencer or outright uh, anybody I've worked, worked with the material. I went in with the attitude of how do I make this work as a film and give somebody the experience that I had when I read it and fell in love with it and do it in a new language, uh, almost like a translator or, or an editor. That's just been my experience. And then the one or two times I've adapted 
books and that were not great. Uh, that I, and these were not things I've gotten made into films as of this point, probably never should, because I didn't like the way they came out. I mean, I took a couple of times, I took something where they well, there's a good idea here, but I'm going to leap off, off from it because the book itself doesn't work well. And I was never happy with the screenplay. And, and maybe that's because I'm not a brilliant enough writer. Uh, I mean, I have certainly read, you know, bad books turned into amazing movies or seen bad books turned into amazing movies. But uh, I don't, I don't know that I have that genius. So I feel like, my my adaptations and the ones that I've either done directly or been involved with have been because I was inspired by somebody else's work as a writer and going, okay, how can I, you know, almost more like the conductor of an orchestra rather than the than the writer of the symphony. It's like how can I take this experience and put it into a new into a new form. And Vincenzo, when you were working with the High Rise and, and Neuromancer, which I I think is still a possibility that we might see a Neuromancer from you, but how, what was your uh, process when it came to those? And they haven't come to fruition yet, or, or you know, obviously High Rise has uh, moved on. But what was your uh, approach to that kind of of adaptation, that kind of material? Uh, well. <laughs> I mean, it was terrifying. This the prospect of adapting Ballard. J.G. Ballard was terrifying to me because I think he's such a genius. Um, and I certainly didn't feel up to the task, but I foolishly did it anyway. Uh, and it was a long process, and I learned a lot. And I really felt that I liked the book a lot. Um, uh, but it was never going to be a direct adaptation. It couldn't be. And... Uh, and and so I learned to kind of fuse myself with it, and uh, maybe a little bit. Keith would be able to comment on this much better than I could, but be a little bit like an actor in a role, and 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 kind of turn myself into do my best J.G. Ballard impression, <laughs> um, uh, but taking it from a contemporary perspective because that book was written quite some time ago, and I felt that the important thing was to be faithful to the essence of the book and that the details were entirely malleable and, and not to be, uh, faithful to the superficial components of it and, and to really kind of delve deep inside it and try and then find a shape that way. And, uh, and it was the same thing that was a, that was quite a hard adaptation, which ultimately was not made by me. (laughs) So I don't know how it would have turned out. Uh, and a neuromancer, uh, which I don't think will ever happen for me either, but was in fact much more straightforward. Even though it was kind of a, in its own way a dense book, it actually kind of found the filmic structure much easier. And um, so I'm sure every book, of course, is 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 different, and every interpretation of or adaptation of a book is going to be different. They probably all have their own requirements. But I definitely feel that in going through that process. Uh, there maybe there's a Maltese Falcon out there where you could say to your secretary, okay, type this up in script form and then we'll shoot that. Um, but I'm sure most of the time, especially if you real depth or complexity to it, uh, it's about kind of burying, finding the, the hidden treasure and, and understanding it, absorbing it and then making it your own. But bringing it back to the shining, I, I feel as though I, and as I have, again, I've read the book since I was 11 years old. So God knows what I would think about it now, or maybe my memory of it is really distorted, but somehow I feel like the movie, even though it's its own thing, is still that book. Like it didn't, the two are very recognizable uh, as siblings and they're not the same, but they're definitely 
cut from the same cloth. And uh, I mean, maybe with Stephen King, I'm just guessing, but maybe part of the reason he didn't care for it is that Stanley Kubrick's a very intellectual filmmaker. And I, I love Stephen King, and I think he's an extraordinary writer, but I don't think he's terribly intellectual. And, and I could see why that would, he would chafe against that. Whereas I think Christine, which is also a movie I like a lot, which, in which you are brilliant, Keith, um, I could see Stephen King liking that film because it feels, it, it feels like he could have directed it. It feels much more in his vernacular. Whereas the the language, the filmic language of Stanley Kubrick is, it, it, I don't, I, I don't, I don't hear Stephen King's prose in the way he makes movies. Well, yeah, I think Christine is very rock and roll. You know, from the soundtrack, the look of it, the use of the widescreen, everything that Carpenter was doing with that, just it it felt very, very rock and roll. So I, I, I do see it living more in that world in being, I don't know, more faithful to the idea of of what King is all about. Yeah, it's a tonal thing. I think that's just it. It's very much a tonal thing. And whereas The Shining is tonally not like if somebody did the novelization of the shining movie, it would read very differently than the original book. I'm sure of it, but they're still kind of coming to the same place. And I think thematically they are, they are dealing with a lot of similar things. One of the things that King probably chafes uh, against is the idea of Jack ultimately not sacrificing himself for the family. There is no redemption of Jack. Whereas we get that redemption in the book and, you know, it's more the boiler blowing up, you know, and, and Halloran survives, obviously, Wendy and Danny survive, but Halloran survives and, and Jack makes the sacrifice. So at the end, there is that glimmer of hope that it doesn't have to be the same way. So I don't know. And to me, I, I find Kubrick to be a much more and in a good way. I know some people don't like cynicism, but I find him to be a much more cynical filmmaker. I mean, anybody that can end, you know, a movie with with a series of nuclear explosions while we'll meet again is playing over it. I mean, that's a brilliant, brilliant ending. And and or you know, uh, and a bum being kicked to death while Alex is singing singing in the rain. These are moments that I can't necessarily see coming in from, uh, you know, that there is no hope to those moments, you know, that wonderful, you know, I was cured all right at the end of Clockwork Orange. I mean, so super cynical. I love it. And I think that is, I think you're exactly right. I think they're two, they're, they're two fascinating, but very different minds. I mean, I think, I think King is very emotional. I mean, he's a very emotional writer. He writes, you know, from the heart and he loves his characters. And I think he expects you to be involved with them emotionally. And I think Kudo Kubrick is all about distance. So I, I can see why that would have driven King crazy. Um, but it's neither is a right or wrong artistic perspective, but they are really different. And, and in some ways, on the obvious surface level, very mismatched in that way. I mean, and I guess that's what I mean in terms of changing. I mean, I, I definitely get what you're saying, Machendo, in terms of that they're still the same. They're springing from the same soil, but they're, they're pretty radical differences in terms of the approach to the story and, and to one's emotional response to the story and what the intentional, the intended emotional responses, I think. So I'm listening to uh, Dr. Sleep. And uh, I had read that it was kind of a, a fuck you to Kubrick and to the movie. 
so far I haven't run across that. I think the the biggest fuck you, and I put that in quotes, is that uh, Halloran survived. You know that it was it was the ending. He based, it's a sequel to the book. It's not a sequel to the film. You know he's not doing a Michael Crichton where he kind of you know revised things with Jurassic Park by making the Lost World a sequel to Spielberg's movie instead of his own book. So I don't necessarily see that fuck you at all uh, as I'm listening to this. I have to say that Will Patton does the the reading and he does just an amazing job of it. I, I feel bad even saying it, but you know it's it. King is notorious for not being able to finish his own book, so I'm waiting for the book to shit the bed. So far, it hasn't, so I'm just like, I really hope that this one comes through. I hope space aliens don't come down at the end and save everybody or something, so... <laughs> I, I'll let people know if that's the case, but so far, so good. I'm about two-thirds of the way through it, and some of it feels a little like Dean Koontz light, almost. This almost feels like another odd Thomas book, That, but so I don't know. Hopefully, it, it ends up not being too bad. I still don't trust the man after going and reading Dreamcatchers, so... I'm just putting that out there that I don't know if I'll ever trust Stephen King again. He's having a revival though. He's he's really um his last few books have been pretty great. I can't believe how many of his things are being adapted right now. I was looking at his IMDb and he's got so many things that have been announced, which who knows if those will happen or not, but so many things in production and post production. It's crazy. Doesn't it say something that he's not been replaced? There's no other writer of well, fiction in general, but but horror who even comes close in all this time? And uh, I mean, that's, oh, sorry. Go, go. No, I was just, I was sorry. I was, I was just going to agree with you. I was just going to say that's a really good point. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's just, you would think by now there would be, because of course he would, I mean, there's a whole generation or maybe two generations of people that grew up reading his stuff who you would think would be out there doing their thing, but there's just no one that has that voice. I love his whole thing that he outlived his critics. That the people who were slamming those books are now the people you know are dead, and now everybody that's loving his books are the you know read them as a kid. I mean, here we are having this conversation. I was just like you, Vincenzo. I remember sitting in my room, you know, uh, probably sixteen, seventeen years old, and pouring through all the King books, pouring through The Shining, going you know, reading Christine, reading Carrie, reading reading Cujo, and just. Those were the the books. You had to read those if you wanted to be able to speak in the vernacular of the time. And it's interesting, too, when you think about talking about the vernacular of the time, and we won't you know, dwell on this too much, but is the whole idea of just how The Shining, the book and the movie, entered into our consciousness and entered into pop culture. I mean, there's so many instances that it would be impossible to list them all, but just, you know, it became shorthand. Yeah. The, the whole idea of the talking finger with Tony and stuff is just amazing. You know, the, the, you, you do that and everybody know well, everybody of our generation probably knows what the hell you're talking about. If I, if I did that to some of my coworkers, it'd be like, what the fuck are you saying? No, but they would know, but that's, I think that's the true sign. Even if they hadn't seen the movie, they would know. It's it's like well I think so it's like, oh I don't know about the finger but certainly here's Johnny or it's like it's like Dorothy's you know ruby slippers or it's just it's like James Dean's red jacket or you know they're just things that have entered the culture to such an extent that they have eclipsed probably their source and and 
and they, uh, you know, I'm sure there are lots of kids out there who have never seen The Shining, but they could tell you what it is, and they could maybe even recite little bits of scenes from it. I was watching that uh, Angry Birds movie, and there's a, actually a moment in the Angry Birds where two of the pigs are dressed like the Grady twins. <laughs> <laughs> which, of course, which of course comes from a Diane Arbus photograph. So there's something very – again, I can't be objective about it because it was so much a part of my childhood. But there's something very resonant. Some movies just have that. They have a kind of resonance. I don't think there's any way to define why or quantify it. But they, they just hit a, a note. And and it goes deep into the you know collective consciousness, and and I and The Shining is absolutely one of those. And horror films, of course, tend to do that when they really really work well. More than any other genre, they tend to have their finger on the pulse of a society and you know what people are truly afraid of. I'm curious if um, either of you guys saw this. It was I think it played it maybe Slam Dance last year. The Chickening. Have yeah, you guys seen, seen that one? No, I, I tell me about it. I don't I have no idea what this is. You can only be seen, and I don't think it could ever be. It could ever be understood. Fair but enough. Somebody, somebody who's they've taken bits of The Shining and they've set it to music, and they've done some like pretty amazing digital Photoshop kind of work on it into, and they've turned it into some sort of theater of the absurd via I don't know what a chicken restaurant infomercial yeah 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 <laughs> putting kind of like stoker ace in that chicken outfit they put johnny's jack torrance's face inside of the chicken outfit and just the lines <laughs> that they choose and there's that amazing did you guys see that that remix of the shining just called shining which is the heartfelt yes. version oh my god <laughs> It's brilliant. When they start playing the um, the Peter Gabriel song and just all the the heartfelt moments, yeah, that, that is worth looking. I'm sure. I think it's on YouTube. So if anybody not seen it, you, that is that is well worth searching out. That's kind of a masterclass in editing, actually. Yeah, I think they only use like one line from something else where he says, "I'm going to be your new stepdad," and that's everything else is straight from the movie. Have you seen Have you seen the uh, the Overlook dot com website? Um, yeah, I think so. It's just mostly articles and stuff. It's just right? every. It's like every little bit and yeah, drip and drab and bit of information about The Shining, and it's it, and there's always stuff coming up constantly. There's a. I'll link to that definitely when I put up the show notes, as, as well as the chickening and shining. And there's also a, a, a Pinterest out there. I'm not a real Pinterest type of person, but there's a Pinterest where somebody just has been keeping all of the alternate poster images for The Shining. And just some of those are so amazing. Just to see the artwork that the film has inspired over the years, especially over the last five years, has just been remarkable. Wow. Uh, I'll, I'll go to those. Let's go ahead and take another break and play a preview for next week's show. Enfermé dans une chambre froide. 
Elle vivait là. Elle n'a pas été violée, c'est une certitude. Lucie ne raconte pas ce qu'elle a vécu. Pourquoi tu crois qu'on a besoin de toi Lucie, vous voulez attraper les gens qui ont fait du mal à Lucie C'est ça, Anna. Elle sait pas qui c'est. Il faisait tout noir. Elle croit qu'elle se souvient, puis des fois non. Qu'est-ce qu'elle te dit d'autre juste Elle a peur. Elle te raconte des choses Elle dit qu'il faut les attraper. Lucie Jura nous a échappé il y a 15 ans, n'est-ce pas Je t'ai tué Lucie n'est qu'une victime, comme toutes les autres. C'est si facile de créer une victime, mademoiselle, si facile. Le monde est ainsi fait qu'il n'y a plus que des victimes. Les martyrs sont très rares. Tu l'as défendu, elle a refait aussi. Elle a fait du mal à moi. À moi ah Tu m'as jamais cru. Je pense que je suis folle comme les autres. Arrête. Lucie Tu vois, je vais m'en sortir. That's right, we'll be back next week with the discussion of Martyrs, that fun-filled French romp about two sisters and all the trouble they get into. Before we go, I want to thank this week's co-hosts. Now, Keith, I know you are in the middle of shooting on Homeland. How's that going? Uh, fine. Uh, getting towards the end now. It's been, you know, it's a, a wonderful bunch of people, so I'm, I always like going back to it. Do you have your next gig lined up already? Well, the next couple of TV gigs, I'm going to be doing Better Call Saul, which is a show I love. Then I'm going back to Fargo, which is a show I also really love and did last year and had an amazing experience on. And and then I'm still trying to get my own stuff made. I got a couple of TV things and my usual little independent features that I'm like I'm sure Vincenzo and everybody else running around <laughs> chasing financing and and screaming into mirrors, but with the hope of getting back to making my own films. Yeah, I still always quote your line about how you're a uh, full-time financier, part-time filmmaker. Yeah, it's one of the, when I teach, that's one of the first things I say to, you know, if you want to be an independent filmmaker, you will be a a uh, professional fundraiser who directs as a hobby. And that's kind of the sad reality. Now, Vincenzo, I know you've got some real exciting stuff coming up. I don't know how much you're willing to talk about things like, you know, Star Trek Discovery or American Gods or any of that fun stuff. Uh, yeah, that's what's keeping me up at night. <laughs> <laughs> It's good. It's great. I feel very, very lucky. It's uh, it's fun, and uh, yes, working on that, and then and then I have my own Stephen King slash Joe Hill adaptation. I'm trying to get made. Oh, very wow. cool. Uh, yeah, they wrote a sh- Joe Hill. As you probably know is Stephen King's son, and is quite an extraordinary writer. Um, and uh, they wrote a novella together called In the Tall Grass. So yes, I hope I can make that when. 
we have grass next year. <laughs> we'll see. If there is grass next year, who knows? The way things are going. Pretty soon they'll be spraying the, the crops with electrolytes because it's good for them. <laughs> Donald Trump will be flying that plane. <laughs> Talk about horror films. Yeah, I'm, oh, I'm kind of busy doing the whole, like, what does it take to move to Canada thing? <laughs> right. Yeah, come here. It's nice. We Yeah, it's getting, it's getting, war- it's getting warmer all the time. Of course, no. It's going to be. It'll be like being at the equator soon. <laughs> but I did. I immediately went online and was going like, "Yeah, what? Is, how does it? What, how do you apply?" And started like putting those websites on. The fold, you know. oh. Well, guys, thank you so much for your time tonight. This has been a real treat. I'm so glad that this worked out. You know, it was kind of touch and go for a little bit there. You guys, you know, having your busy schedules and everything, which is completely understandable. So I'm really glad that we were able to, to spend an evening together talking about this film. Well, I was, it was, I, I feel like I learned a lot listening to you guys. So I, I'm, I'm really, I enjoyed it immensely and, and feel like I know more than I started. Ditto. <laughs> it was great. No, thank you so much, Mike. And, and Keith, it was so good to speak with you. And you were very kind yeah. to me on, on the return. I remember that really well. It was, um, it was really wonderful. Well, I'm glad to reconnect. And, and you know, I'm, ex- I'm excited to see what you're doing. I mean, I, you know, the Star Trek thing sounds cool. And, I, you know, I'm, as, as they say, we should stay in touch. Please, oh, please. Okay. And I haven't, you know, I got to confess, because I have a five-year-old, I don't, I consume virtually no media other than whatever he watches. Um, but I'm dying you're to see Fargo. You're probably better off. <laughs> I don't think so. No, I'm, and I'm dying to see Fargo. Everybody tells me it's, it's, actually, it's, it's pretty remarkable. I gotta say, everybody tells me it's the best thing there is. It's pretty. I mean, you know, and and, and as you know, when you direct TV, you, you 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 can actually hype the things you say without feeling embarrassed. Work on without feeling embarrassed because you don't really take much of the credit. I mean, really, TV is a showrunner's medium and a creator's medium and a writer's medium more than features. So, you know, Fargo is all about Noah Hawley, and I think he's done an amazing, amazing thing and created something very. You know, that maybe jumped off from the Coen brothers, but created something equally brilliant in its own strange and wonderful way. And I'm grateful to be a part of it. But, you know, first, second and third, it comes down to that guy and his very odd but wonderful way of looking at the world. Uh, But if you haven't seen it, yeah, it's quite it's quite special. I cannot wait. And I'm excited for you uh, doing the Better Call Saul because that is fantastic. Yeah, yeah, no, me too. And I'm a and I'm a huge Vince Gilligan fan. and, And I I had been, they'd asked me a couple of times to work on, on Breaking Bad early on, and I couldn't do it at the time. I, we were just In one case, my mother was dying. It was just a really bad timing, and I couldn't. And then I feel like, okay, I missed my chance to work on like one of the great things ever done for TV. And then they never called again, so I sort of thought, oh, dear, have I insulted people that I admire forever? And so the fact that I'm now getting to finally kind of go into that world makes me very, very happy because you know, I admire him immensely. And I think Owen Kirk's wonderful. And I mean, the whole that whole gang of people are people I'm very excited to get to work with. So I'm 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 very happy to be doing it. Oh, terrific. So, yeah, everybody feel free to come on over to projection dash boot dot com. I'll have all kinds of great links link over to that Pinterest site, link over to Overlook, show you the the chickening um, preview, some just amazing stuff. I just rewatched the chickening before we uh, got on the phone and I forgot just how wonderful it is. So go on over uh, projection-boot.com. You can also find a link to our iTunes page where you can rate and review the show and go over to Patreon, make a donation. Every donation, every rating, every review helps the projection booth to take over the world. 
stars and you Midnight and a rendezvous Your eyes held a message tender Saying I surrender all my love to you Midnight brought a sweet romance I know all my whole life through I'll be remembering you Whatever else I do Midnight where the stars and you Thinking along the lines of no TV and no beer, make Homer something, something. Go crazy? Don't mind if I do! If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.